Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Ladies and gentlemen, today's feature presentation, Driving Miss Daisy. No, oh, no, man. No. Just, just what I'm talking about. It's turning the dim shit. I'm out Hey, yo, check it out, man. I got Black C's at the crib, man. Y'all want to go check that out? Yeah. It's idea we could have rolled it from the get, y'all. With Fuck Hollywood. The pioneers of African-American cinema are front and center in Seattle this month. Tonight, the Paramount Theater is screening Body and Soul from 1925. It is the second of three silent movie Mondays to feature films with black actors or directors. Zola Mumford is a film historian who is curating the series with the nonprofit arts organization Langston and the Seattle Theater Group. We recently sat down to talk about the film Body and Soul, its enterprising director Oscar Micheaux, and what Hollywood was like in the 1920s for people of color. In some ways, I think it might be um, comparable to the difficulties that touring black performers had with vaudeville. People were working essentially on a separate stage. I'm curious if there were solid, meaty roles for black actors, because I think a lot of of early Hollywood and people of color uh, being cast as these stereotypes, and they wanted to work in the films, but to do so, many times they had to play these roles that were caricatures uh, that were not accurate and, and insulting. Yes, and it really ended up driving a lot of entrepreneurship where black men and some black women in the early days of film found their own production companies. Um, There were people working in Chicago, in the Southeast. So that culture of entrepreneurship, uh, does that bring us to somebody like Oscar Micheaux, this early African-American director? It does. Oscar Micheaux, um, I like to think of him as more than a Renaissance man, but um, extremely pragmatic. He, at one point, was running two farms in order to earn enough money to marry a woman he was in love with. And I think her parents didn't approve of him or something. And I would if somebody was trying that hard to marry my daughter. (laughs) But um, 
He also has, uh, he published, he self-published novels. And then moving into filmmaking, he would sometimes, uh, depending upon the kind of market he faced, would travel with his film reels to small towns and essentially was his own distributor, Michaud and other directors. It wouldn't have been unusual for them to screen the films themselves, introduce it themselves, collect the money themselves, and it might have happened in a church hall. It might have happened in the local African-American Masonic Lodge or any place that the community had gathered. So tonight's film, Body and Soul, 1925, stars the legendary Paul Robeson in his first film role. What's he like in this movie? He's very compelling. He plays an escaped convict who passes himself off as a preacher in his small Georgia hometown. And he meets a sort of um, juke joint habitue, and they decide to come up with a scheme to rob the innocent parishioners. But he also plays a twin brother who's an inventor, believes strongly in education, and happens to be courting the same young lady that the wicked so-called minister is courting. This was his only film with an African-American director. And in later years, he denied having been in the film and told people that instead his first film role was The Emperor Jones in 1933. Why would he have done that? It's not clear exactly why. There's Mm. a bit of controversy about body and soul. Michaud had to try several times to get it past the New York State Board of Censors. So he had to recut the film and resubmit it to the New York State Board of Censors. And they didn't like the depiction of drinking and gambling, said there was too much. They also thought that religion came off looking very bad because we had someone who was impersonating a preacher who was a villain. So he cuts and he recuts. He takes it back. He encountered other difficulties with censors in other states. So Michaud, because he was distributing his own work, if he had a sense of the audience where he was going, he would make a cut for that town or that region and then show a different cut at the next booking. Wow. So we don't know what the whole film really was like. There is no director's cut, sad to say, of body and soul. Getting back to Paul Robeson. Yeah, he denies this film. We don't know why he denied having been in the film. And, I mean, people can see you, you're in it. (laughs) You know, it's kind of... (laughs) Right, right, right. You know, I don't know what you're telling people, but it may have been uh, related to this fallout about the film having this kind of lurid content. And very sadly, Oscar Michaud's widow burned his personal papers. Hmm. We don't know if the answer was in there, but also a huge piece of history is lost. Hollywood is still having some of the conversations about not just representation in the finished product, um, but also access to opportunity. I mean, we we heard about a few years ago, we heard about Oscars So White and, and the campaign of, you know, look who's winning these prestigious awards. Just last week, uh, Tyler Perry told CBS that he feels ignored by Hollywood. And he's he's a mogul. I mean, he's a film mogul. Um, what's your view as a film historian who has watched kind of longitudinally here where Hollywood is today and what kind of work it has to do? Tyler Perry's 
story is interesting because in his early days of performing, he slept in his car and he was doing stage plays before he moved into film. And that makes me think of Oscar Micheaux and the other filmmakers, the other traveling performers who were doing the same thing under very different circumstances, yes. But it's interesting that that thread of entrepreneurship, of identifying an enthusiastic audience, trying to make work that not only includes them, but just shows that like black American culture is normal and part of America. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're still kind of having that conversation. There are still obstacles and barriers, but there seem to be more ways for things to get funded. There seems to be more acknowledgement that there's a diverse audience. I think we are seeing a change in audience as well. What does it mean to you personally to have movies like this shown and remembered and talked about? Well, it's good when art reminds people that black people existed before 1955. Mm. It helps people to learn how complicated our country's history is. It's a reminder that even under incredibly dangerous and oppressive social conditions, so within our gates, the film that's showing on October 1st, 21st, we need to remember that 1919 was Red Summer, where black business districts were destroyed, were just out of the war, World War I, and there are many documented instances of black soldiers, often in uniform, being murdered, lynched. Yet, Oscar Micheaux continues to make films, to have a strong and clear message about the need for equality and fairness. I think that history and the teaching of history are incredibly important, especially now. It's not something that happens in snippets or bullet points. And that's why it's good to see a film, but then go talk about it with someone. I mean, you never know what, where it could lead you. It could lead you to something that's really good for you, yourself, whoever you are. Zola, thanks. Thank you very much. Zola Mumford is a film historian and is curating the Pioneers of African American Cinema series as part of Silent Movie Mondays at the Paramount Theater. Tonight's film is Body and Soul, starring Paul Robeson. It begins at 7. The system of racism and white supremacy of which slavery was a part. In slavery, we were breeders and studs. Our job was to produce more slaves. Just producing slave, producing slave, producing slave. Not producing children for the maximal development. That wasn't what the slave masters wanted us to do. So we were bred like animals, breeding. Now we're breeding to produce people for the prison system. Well, once we begin to understand that, then we change our attitudes towards what we do with our genitals. We're not playing with them because, as I said, when people play with sex, the joke is on the offspring. 
Today on StoryCorps, Guy Bryant worked with teenagers who'd been in foster care and were transitioning to living on their own. But after 30 years as an administrator in the child welfare system, he still felt like he wasn't doing enough. So one day he brought his work home with him. Twelve years later, he has fostered over 50 young people in his New York City apartment. He came to StoryCorps with one of the kids, Romario Vassell, to talk about the early days. What were you feeling when you brought your first kid home? Nervous. I was nervous because I lived alone at that point, and he was a kid that nobody wanted to take because of his behaviors. He got in a fight, and he appeared at my house. It was late, so I called and let them know he was with me, and I agreed to take him. How did your family react when you became a foster parent? They thought I was out of my mind. (laughs) They were like, you live alone so long. And my ex-wife was like, I don't know about this. You're just so set in your ways. I said, I can do this. And she said, I know you can if you put your mind to it. The first time I met you, Pop, I think it was at the office. Yeah. I remember that you came in and you were disheveled. You were still in the shelter. And I presented to you coming into foster care. And at first you were hesitant. Because I didn't know how foster care was. I've heard crazy stories. But then you were like, all right. It was definitely one of the best decisions I made in foster care. Definitely. You know, every time I turned around, there was a kid who needed a place to stay. And I felt like it's so simple. If you have the space in your home and heart, you just do it. You don't really think about it. At one point, I had nine kids in my house and had to move to a bigger apartment. The old kids still have their keys and... You know, usually everybody's in the house on Sundays. Old kids, new kids. (laughs) I usually cook a lot. Last Sunday's dinner was barbecue chicken, fried chicken, macaroni and cheese. The macaroni was good. Collard greens, cornbread. I try to cook enough to last a day or two, but that never works out that way. (laughs) What has changed since you started living with me? If I feel down and like I'm cornered, I have someone I can reach out to and talk to, and that's what I really love. Whatever you've learned from me, I want you to teach it to someone else because that's what's important to me. How do you want to be remembered? As pop. Okay. That says it all to me, that I can be somebody's pop without being biologically connected to them. What do you know in your mind? (laughs) Yeah, I know I am. And I love you to death. That's Guy Bryant and Romario Vassell at StoryCorps. And that interview will be archived along with hundreds of thousands of others in the Library of Congress. Detroit is home to an unusual museum that draws on African history and customs, including a city block filled with installations and sculptures. It also allows visitors hands-on experiences and is a stabilizing force in the city. Special correspondent Mary Ellen Geist reports as part of our ongoing arts and culture series, Canvas. 
Oleyami Dobbles is an artist and the founder of Detroit's MBAD African Bead Museum. You gotta do some things for this. The average person decided that I would open up an African bead museum, especially learning that the beads embody the culture and the history of the people. And that's something that was missing in the history of Africans in this country. The museum is located in one of Detroit's most distressed neighborhoods and for two decades has provided something else that was missing, stability. It has expanded to include a bead gallery and 18 outdoor sculptures covering an entire city block. I decided to take the relationship between Africans and Europeans over a 500-year period of time and put them in storylines. And to my surprise, the community was elated over this. Oh, man, this is nice. The best indicator that we have been accepted by the community, this place is out in the open. You can access it 24-7. Anyone can come. If people wanted to destroy it, they could destroy it in one day. Years of work. Maurice Cox is the former director of Detroit's Planning and Development Department. Artists have a very special uh, superpower to take uh, the ordinary and turn it into something extraordinary. The area that Davos adopted was an area that was devastated and had gone through trauma. He found a way to tell that story, but also to find some joy in the retelling of the story. In telling the story of his neighborhood, Davos has inspired Detroit officials to rethink how to structure the city's recovery. He's begun to show us how the city can recover um, in increments. His bead museum is a building that, on one part, it's completely ornate and it's been transformed. But then you go to another portion of it and the roof is caved in and it's waiting for investment. He said, oh, okay, here's a way that you can incrementally go about stabilizing an area or building that wasn't. That's a brand new way of creating an institution. That's not normally how we do it. This is not a traditional museum. This is a museum for exposure, to connect with what's inside of you. The community engage with us on their own term. Dobbles has continued to engage the surrounding community by starting an internship program. Over time, the surrounding neighborhood may change, but Dobbles says the guiding principle behind his work and the MBAD African Bead Museum will not. Just because a person is poor, just because a person is homeless, just because a person doesn't have uh, anything, they still can have an appreciation for art. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Mary Ellen Geist in Detroit, Michigan. That's right, we move into Mississippi, and you know how that spell. M I crooked letter, crooked letter I, crooked letter, crooked letter I, hook back, hook back I. <laughs> Mississippi's Emmett Till Memorial is being rededicated for the fourth time. The previous signs were vandalized with bullet holes and spray paint and acid. The new sign will be dedicated today near the Tallahatchie River not far from where the body of 14-year-old Emmett Till was found 64 years ago after he was brutally murdered by two white men. Patrick Weems is the executive director of the Emmett Till Memorial Commission and joins us. Thanks very much for being with us, Mr. Weems. Thank you. How is this new memorial different from 
the three that were vandalized? This one is a little bit different in the sense that we hopefully have a vandal-proof sign. We've created a sign that has bulletproof glass on the front, weighs over 500 pounds, and has uh, adequate security so that we don't continue to run into this problem of vandalism. Can you help us understand what happened to the previous signs? Yeah, so since 2007, we've honored Emmett Till, um, beginning with an apology from our community. It was 50 years until the first sign honoring Emmett Till took place in Mississippi. Um, That sign was a highway memorial sign, and uh, once it was put up, someone wrote KKK on it. Since that time, our signs have been shot at, uh, thrown in the river, someone threw acid on one of them. And so it's been this constant struggle on on how to memorialize Emmett Till's memory and how to keep these markers up. Yeah. Who will help you dedicate this memorial this weekend? So we've got a, a good group of folks. Our organization is made up of community leaders, both black and white, who've been together for over the last 10 years. Um, so our community board and then members from the Till family are traveling from Chicago to be with us, in particular, Reverend Wheeler Parker, who is the last living cousin who is with Emmett Till, coming down on the train from Chicago at the store in 1955 and in the house the night of the kidnapping. What's the range of feelings in in Tallahatchie County, as you've experienced it, about having the Emmett Till Memorial? It's been a range of views. Um, I think early on, a lot of people were skeptical about what this work would really look like and whether it was opportunistic or whether it was just too hard of a story to talk about, right? Let's just not talk about that. Let's leave that alone. Fortunately, we had a group of stakeholders who who knew that this was an important story, um, knew that this had to be told. And since we took the track of beginning our commission and beginning our organization by with an apology, it really set the tone for what the work was about, right? That we're not remembering Emmett Till to bring up ill will. We're not remembering Emmett Till to bring up divisiveness, but we're using it as a tool for racial healing. And since we've been doing this work, we've seen a lot of changes in the community that we we think have spawned out of that work. I guess it's hard to... Imagine, but good to remember that Emmett Pill was uh, at the time of his death was just 14 years old. That's correct. Yeah, so he came to visit his uncle Mose, great uncle Mose, and um, wanted to spend the summer with his cousins in Mississippi, and unfortunately did not make it out. Um, and his mother, um, she wanted to make sure that he didn't die in vain, and so she made sure that his body was brought back from Mississippi and held the open casket in Chicago. And and so 100 days later, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. And many years later, she was asked why. And she said, I was thinking about Emmett, and I couldn't back down. Patrick Weems is executive director of the Emmett Till Memorial Commission. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you all. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. It's Morning Edition on WNYC. I'm Richard Hake. Every Wednesday, WNYC's cultural critic, Rebecca Carroll, joins us to share her thoughts and opinions on race and culture. And today we're talking about how branding, the birthing experience of black women, 
can be a good thing. Rebecca, good morning. Good morning, Richard. All right, so you spoke recently with Latham Thomas. Tell us about her, and I'm, I'm very interested in this topic. Yeah, it is really interesting. Latham Thomas is the founder of something called Mama Glow, and she was recently featured on the Roots 100 Most Influential African Americans. Mama Glow is described on its website as a maternity lifestyle brand committed to supporting women along the childbearing continuum. Oh, boy, that's a mouthful. Right, yeah. So the stats are very clear and damning when it comes to the discrepancies in reproductive health care provided to black women versus white women or Mm. other women of color. Black women experience maternal crisis at a much higher rate, including disproportionately higher rates of death during childbirth. And so we're paying attention to this issue on a national level now more than ever. But Latham has been doing this work since 2012, and so I asked her how she feels about that. It's such a blessing that we have tools now that help us to further populate the media landscape, but also that carry the narrative. You know, when I was doing the work, um, there was conferences that we would go to that were focused on maternal mortality and nobody would attend. And it was alarming the information that we learned about um, African-American women specifically because we're in a 25-year increase in terms of black maternal deaths, right? So it just so happened that we had this really pivotal, I think, seminal pieces that came out with the New York Times story with Linda Linda Rosa, yeah, and then the ProPublica piece in 2017. So that, I think, helped to create a narrative for people that we're in a crisis, right, and brought national attention, but really global attention to a crisis that we see that's happening here. And what we know is that the CDC just released new data, right, two weeks ago, which says that um, black women are now four to five times more likely than white women to die during childbirth or due to childbirth-related causes. When we saw those New York Times pieces, it was three to four times. And so we see that there's been an uptick. And those numbers are also the same as UK numbers. And so we see this sort of trajectory that anti-blackness is global. And this is not something that is just happening here, but it's happening in many spaces where women are not seen, they're not heard, they're neglected. So it's not just America, which I guess gives this issue a lot more weight then, right? Yes, it does. Although I think many times when an issue that involves anti-black racism goes into a larger global context, Mm -hmm. the racism that we black folks in the U.S. experience on a daily basis can get kind of lost or Mm -hmm. overshadowed. Mm -hmm. So when you apply that to the experience of childbirth in particular, there are a lot of ways that we've trained ourselves to navigate various spaces. People of color have a very unique skill. And I think it's an imperfect intelligence that we walk into a room and we can tell whether or not we're safe. Trauma comes in where it plays out in some of these health outcomes, right? Because we see hypertension and we see the stress, which affects every aspect of our health, but really our mental health that we don't address. And then obviously in our community, there's like a stigma, which I think is just starting to slowly unravel around looking at how mental health is like, you know, we have to approach mental hygiene, like we approach everything else. And I think we're just now having language for that as well. So, you I mean, know, it had to, th- that issue of mental health, which is an, obviously another conversation, but also of a piece, mm-hmm. had to happen during this time. It had to. Because we're we going to lose our minds yes. in this administration if we oh don't my God. actually look at what we're keeping, mm-hmm. what we already have yes. repressed. Yes. And Rebecca, you say her work is largely about helping connect new parents to resources. Yeah, they offer workshops and conferences and doulas uh, Mm -hmm. and encouragement, really, on all aspects of giving birth. And Latham says the work is really deeply meaningful to her. 
I often think of Harriet Tubman and how she carried people to safe passage by night. And that I believe that's the work that we do as doulas is to help people navigate this uncharted territory in darkness and to birth their babies into the light. And so for me, it's a calling. It's not something that I like, you know, it's a passion for me or whatever. It's really a calling, which means that when you feel called, you get up in the middle of the night, three in the morning, dress your baby, take them to your baby daddy's house. Like, I mean, for me, that's what it was. It wasn't a choice. It was like... God laid it upon me to do this work. Wow, it's pretty profound. But but Rebecca, at the same time, she calls Mama Glow a lifestyle brand, which, you know, kind of has a different feel to it. It's weird, right? <laughs> I mean, like, why is it necessary to label something so personal, so individual and intimate that also carries some very serious policy ramifications, a brand? So here's what she said, smartly. I think it's about a presentation, an ethos, like a... Um, a lexicon, a language, right? And helping people to craft a language and reframe the way they think about this experience. Like this messaging speaks to who I am or who I want to become. And so much of our focus, and I love our first lady, Michelle Obama, with this concept that she brought through about becoming, which is so much of like who we are always becoming, right? And so these women who come, they are committed to becoming, to unraveling. And also as they do this work, they're confronting their own trauma, their mother's trauma, their grandmother's stuff that they're carrying with them and and slowly unraveling and untangling what we've inherited so that they could actually be these vessels of service for other women. And so I feel like the brand ethos helps people to anchor in that and then find their entry point into how they want to do this work in the world and how they want to approach the conversation. Now, her work seems very birth-focused, but what about people who become parents in other ways? I, I know, Rebecca, you talk about this, uh, and it's something you think about, but you were adopted. That's right. Yeah, I asked her about that directly. It's really not for us to say what's going to work for other people, but for them to, for themselves, through experience, through sort of getting some things wrong or right and figuring out who this person is when they arrive because they're here to teach us. And so she also talks about it from a very personal level, how she, as a single mother and as herself the daughter of a single mother, worried about perpetuating cycles. Essentially, though, she says, regardless of how you arrive at parenting, the key thing is mindfulness. Latham Thomas is the founder of Mama Glow, and Rebecca Carroll is WNYC's cultural critic. Rebecca, thanks so much. Thank you, Richard. Black babies cost less. Premature birth before 37 weeks is the biggest cause of death amongst newborns across the world. And whilst incubators can save the lives of some premature babies, they cannot prevent them from developing long-term disabilities. Now, doctors in the Netherlands say they are within 10 years of developing an alternative, an artificial womb that could save many more lives and reduce the risk of such disabilities. But as Sophia Batitza reports as part of the BBC's 100 Women's Season, the development also raises important ethical questions. We had made a bronze artwork for James to remember him and here you see him lie down in the womb as he lay down at my chest the day he came out of the incubator. I never had hold him and this was the first time because the doctor said that James was dying. In 2012, Dutch lawyer Sanne, who is now a mother of three, gave birth to a 24-week-old baby, James. He was placed in an incubator, but died two months later. Only around half of the babies born at 24 weeks and placed in an incubator survive. And many of those have severe disabilities. 
We're in a room in the neonatal intensive care unit of the hospital. I'm looking at a premature baby of 27 weeks inside an incubator. It's really small. It's about 20 centimeters long. Dr. Ui, is this the kind of baby that an artificial womb could help? Yes, babies uh, of this size will be uh, helped in an artificial womb. That's right. Dr. Git Oi is head of the team developing the artificial womb at the Maxima Medical Center in Veldhoven. He and two of his team used a model of a baby to show me how the womb will work. So you put in the baby in a red bag, which is the artificial womb, and that's that's full of liquid, right? That's full of liquid, yes, to uh, mimic the amniotic fluid that's normally in the womb. Then we can close it. And then we can attach the artificial placenta. When you're connecting exactly. the umbilical cord of the placenta to the umbilical cord of the baby. So for the artificial womb, we have just one connection to the outside world, and that is the artificial placenta. And the artificial placenta will take care of all the life support that this infant will need. Similar technology has already been tested successfully on premature lambs in the U.S., and Dr. Oi is confident the artificial womb will help more premature babies survive and without complications. The main difference is that an artificial womb is filled with liquid and the incubator is filled with air. Air damages the lungs. Well, we know that every day that the baby is longer in the womb, the survival rate will increase by 3%. To spark a public debate, large-scale models of artificial wombs have been built for an exhibition in Amsterdam. Lisa Mandemacher is one of the designers. I imagine further down in the future, an artificial womb could become part of a lifestyle choice for women because you don't have to worry about the morning sickness, changes into your body. It could be really good for your career if you want to focus on that. The medical ethicist Hafiz Ismaili Mohamdi says artificial wombs could have an effect on the age at which a fetus can survive with medical help outside the mother's womb, its viability, and on the time limit for abortions. Both are 24 weeks in the Netherlands. Viability might change its 24 weeks, but with this new technology we can push that back to 22, 21 maybe. That might also have consequences for when women or parents are allowed to abort their pregnancy. And could artificial wombs one day be used to grow a baby for the full nine months? Dr. Oi thinks this is more in the realms of science fiction and says his artificial womb is only aimed at saving babies born between 24 and 28 weeks and giving hope to parents such as Sana. I think the artificial womb could save so many lives of little babies that were born premature. And that's the biggest gift you can give parents. That report by Sophia Batitza. Why haven't you learned anything? Safety, that was what many UConn students had to say after this. When I saw the video, I have to be honest, I was pretty numb. Outraged and concerned for their safety, that was what many UConn students had to say after this viral video surfaced on social media. This is something that happens so often at UConn. Um, This is something that 
It seems like nobody really cares about. The video allegedly shows three white males walking through the parking lot of the Charter Oak Apartments shouting the N-word to black students inside of their rooms and then laughing about it. The university hoped to address the concerns in Wednesday's meeting where students were able to share how the video made them feel. It's just very upsetting to me that I'm a senior and this is the first time this is being addressed and the fact that it's at Charter Oak Community Center and not at the student union. Our president isn't here, police officers aren't here, it just seems like they're running around the same thing to me. It's 2019 and they can confirm that there's not a specific protocol set in place to deal with these kinds of issues and unfortunately this is a predominantly white institution so for them to not have any anything to do or um, say when it comes time for issues like this is very concerning. Many students telling News 8 they don't feel the meeting will accomplish any significant changes on campus. Some saying they don't even feel a meeting of this nature would have happened if it weren't for the video. But they hope the university will hear their plea. I know that if this video did not go viral, this would not be taking place because even with it going viral, there haven't been many things done. Um, I just hope that we can change the culture and that these uh, people these white people don't uh, necessarily get too comfortable with all these like derogatory terms. Every nigga is a star. Every nigga is a star. Who will deny that you and I and every nigga is a star? And a Richmond teacher is out of a job tonight after school officials confirmed that middle school teacher used racially insensitive language towards a student. A teacher accused of using the N-word. The incident happened last week at Lucille Brown Middle School. That's off Jenk Road. The comments left parents and students fired up. Eric Perry first broke this story live at 5. And Eric, tell us how the school system is handling this. Yeah, well, I can tell you that employee no longer an employee with the school system. She's out of the classroom after calling a student the N-word. One parent I talked to say she's concerned about the many students inside that classroom. They don't think that they'll be able to move forward from this. Middle school's teacher is no longer in front of the class after officials confirmed she used a racial slur towards a student. She called him a glitz. She called the student a glitz. Um, she went on and there was words, other words expressed and stated uh, out loud. It happened inside a seventh grade class at Lucille Murray Brown Middle School last Tuesday. School officials say the teacher was talking to one student, but it was in front of a full class. The school sent this letter out Thursday telling parents something happened. No one should be called a or a let uh, for any reason. So I'm concerned about the culture. Uh, that's taking place within that school. Um, I'm, I'm very concerned about who we have in our classrooms. This parent's child was inside the class and heard it happen. Students went straight to school administrators to report it. That racism has many faces, and this just happens to be one of them. A spokesperson for Richmond Public Schools says the school system does not condone offensive or inappropriate language of any kind. They call it absolutely unacceptable and say it will not be tolerated. That teacher no longer employed with the school system. We're not only inappropriate, but it's hateful. This parent encouraging all to get involved in your child's school to know what is going on.
really get in those classrooms, get to know who your children, um, their instructors are, build relationships, and you can see exactly um, what's going on and who's teaching our children. And to get that teacher no longer on the job, the school system has not released their name. On your side in Richmond, I'm Eric Perry, NBC 12 News. Never faking the funk, voice travels across, pumps out of your trunk like Lee Malvo. 17 years ago, Washington, D.C. was terrorized by two snipers who shot and killed 10 people and injured three others. 17-year-old Lee Boyd Malvo and his surrogate father, John Allen Muhammad, were convicted of murder. Muhammad was executed. Malvo, the teenager, got life without parole. But years later, the Supreme Court would make it much harder to give a juvenile a sentence like that. And now Malvo's case is at the Supreme Court. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg has the story. If you lived in Washington, D.C. back in 2002, you remember the palpable fear that gripped the city. A man has been killed in front of me. A man just fell in the parking lot. There's a lady, she's not moving. The shootings were so random and so lethal that people pumping gas often crouched down to avoid being easily seen just in case the sniper was in the vicinity. The saga of the two snipers was bizarre. Malvo, the 17-year-old, said he'd killed 10 of the victims at Muhammad's bidding, often shooting from the trunk of a car through a board hole. A jury convicted him of murder, but instead of death, recommended life without the possibility of parole, and the judge subsequently imposed that sentence. That, however, was in 2004. In the years that followed, the Supreme Court would strike down the death penalty for juvenile offenders, and it would also declare unconstitutional a mandatory life without parole sentence. So Malvo's lawyers went back to court asking for a new sentencing hearing. Two lower courts agreed that his sentencing hearing was unconstitutional because there was no consideration of his youth, and yesterday the Supreme Court heard arguments in the case. Defending Malvo's original sentence was Virginia Solicitor General Toby Heitens, who maintained that life without the possibility of parole was not mandatory because the judge could have reduced the sentence recommended by the jury if she saw fit. Justice Ginsburg, explain to me why these sentences are not mandatory when the jury had only two choices, death or life without parole. And has any Virginia judge ever reduced a jury recommendation to less than life without parole? No, conceded lawyer Heightens, I'm not aware of any such example. Justice Kagan, who wrote the court's 2012 decision, opined that her decision was 30 pages long, but could be summarized in two words, youth matters. Now, nobody disputes that is the rule for cases that came afterward. But the question in the Malvo case is whether the 2012 decision and others that followed apply retroactively to crimes before 2012. Justice Kavanaugh, how do we know, and this is the tough part of the case for me, that a sentencing judge has in fact considered the defendant's youth? He posed the contrary question to Malvo's lawyer, Danielle Spinelli. Most state laws require judges to consider all sorts of factors, and judges don't usually march through a discussion of all of those factors. Why do we think the judge didn't do that here? Because, replied Spinelli, the judge couldn't have even silently in her head considered factors that weren't articulated by this court until years later. What we are asking for is that those factors be considered now in a new sentencing hearing. Justice Alito, so if he can demonstrate that he's been rehabilitated, 
He must be released? No, absolutely not, replied Spinelli, noting that some defendants who get a new hearing are sentenced to life without parole a second time. But even those who are eligible for parole, she said, are not guaranteed they'll ever be paroled. In the years since the D.C. sniper killings, a lot has changed, perhaps for Malveaux as well as his victims. In a 2012 interview with the Washington Post, Malveaux spoke about his crimes this way. I mean, I was a monster. If, I mean, if you look up the definition, I mean, that's what a monster is. I, I was a ghoul. I was a thief. I, I, I stole people's lives. Paul Rufo, one of Malvo's surviving victims, favored the death penalty for Malvo at the time he was shot. But now he thinks Malvo should get a new sentencing hearing. I'm more interested in not Lee Boyd Malvo as, as an individual, but in the many, many other people who did things less heinous than him that were uh, sentenced to life without parole when they were 15, 16 years old. A decision in the case is expected by summer. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. So my question, why is, why is uh, having a white parent important? I mean, the, po- the, the point is, I mean, they're, they're not, the, off, the offspring are not white, is what I'm saying. Even if, it, even if it's somebody light-skinned like, like Cameron Boyce, the actor, victim of racism, Cameron Boyce. Even if they're that light-skinned, I mean, they're still black. Is what I'm saying. So why is having a white parent significant? Inequality in education, employment, and the criminal justice system are top of mind for two undecided voters in Newark, New Jersey. Now, this weekend, those voters had the chance to put questions on those issues directly to Senator Cory Booker. He's one of 12 Democratic candidates who's made it to the stage for tomorrow night's presidential debate. Booker and those voters sat down with our co-host, Ari Shapiro, as part of NPR series Off Script. We met at Vonda's Kitchen. It's a soul food spot in Newark. And while the restaurant is famous for its fried fish and chicken, Senator Booker likes its vegan options. He hasn't eaten animal products in about five years. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, hold up, hold up. This is not to be misconstrued as an endorsement for Senator Booker. It certainly is not. But I am always appreciative of hearing victims of white supremacy who promote, endorse uh, healthy eating plant-based options like the Cows 2019 Counter-Racist Yoga Retreat in Florida, December 28 to January 1, plant-based options, yoga and counter-racist and food workshops. While we are there for five days, four nights, price dropped to 730 saving folks $200. Everybody is paying the same fee, whether you already paid or not. Everybody is paying the same price, $730. Make sure you have your deposit in by the end of the coming week. Back to Cory Booker. He hasn't eaten animal products in about five years. She does Brussels sprouts in a way that is a transformative human experience. Owner and chef Vonna McPherson was in the kitchen when we showed up. Senator Booker says she's a great example of business leadership. When I was mayor of the city, we were trying to get more local people to be entrepreneurs, and especially women, and this was uh, really one of our great success stories. When we sat down with Booker on Saturday, news reports about Tatiana Jefferson had not surfaced yet. She is a black woman who a police officer shot and killed in inside her own home in Texas. Even before that story broke, the voters who sat with us wanted to talk about law enforcement and policing. 
Diana Condalejo is an economist in her late 20s working for a local healthcare network. And Chanel Duns is an education consultant and business owner in her late 40s with five kids and three grandkids. Both are women of color, and both had concerns about police abuses in black and Latino communities. Diana started by asking about accountability. We see that body cameras, you know, are making police brutality more salient. Um, I just want to better understand, you know, what are your policies in order to improve our police system here in the United States? So, look, this is something I've learned the hard way running a police department here, that police accountability is so critically important in police transparency. And so when I, before I became a senator, worked with the ACLU here to try to create national models for police transparency. And one of the biggest things we learned, and I learned this from working with the DOJ here in Newark, is that you have even good-intentioned people who just, because we're not doing deep dives on the data, you don't have that kind of objective understanding. If I may, you refer to working with the DOJ, the Justice Department in Newark, but the police force in Newark came under a consent decree right. from the Department of Justice because the abuses while you were mayor were so egregious. And that went on for years. This was... Well, this just to give you a little bit of a counter to that is I inherited a police department with decades-long problems and patterns and practices. And we were fighting to correct those things, not moving as quickly as we should have. And the DOJ came in, which at first I actually was like, why do I need the DOJ? But when they presented us with the data, we saw that we were not moving fast enough to correct the problems. You were mayor for eight years, and those problems persisted well into your second term. We actually were making tremendous strides on that. And as the head of the ACLU themselves will tell you, that we were embracing reforms, not just in word, but in leadership, and presenting national standard best practices by the time I was so, And so Chanel. while I feel like, yeah, we have to have the numbers, we have to do all this research, but if people are literally dying you know, at the hands of the police here in the street, and how do you then talk to that parent? Have or, you had firsthand experience? So I, I mean, police? sure, I, I have. I can give you my own experience with my own, my very own son. Um, thank God that he was able to walk away. But he was definitely um, in a position where he was in a car. He was stopped for absolutely no reason. Dragged him out of the car, handcuffed him, put him in the back of the police car, still not telling him what's going on. And when the officer saw that he went to this private school here in Newark, he changed his actions towards him and literally left my son, my minor child, on the street at like midnight, just by himself. Yeah, and as a, as a black man who grew up in this country, too, and has right. stories exactly uh, very similar to that, I should say, the indignities uh, that as a young black person that you faced in my generation, as well as the kids today, are, is absolutely outrageous and unacceptable. Yeah. And so it's more than just data collections, more than just body cameras. Um, this has to do with recognizing that implicit racial bias is a reality in this country. And unless you start doing everything from training police officers, getting a diverse police force, it means making sure that we have a DOJ under my leadership that will actually investigate these things, hold people accountable, take up cases when local prosecutors Prosecutors are unwilling to prosecute clear violations of people's civil rights. There has to be a larger vision for how that we do this. And but what do you say to, so in a lot of my work, I talk to like first-time voters, kids that are just turning 18, and those are the things that come up for them, like the criminal justice reform systems. And when we talk about the presidential candidacy, a lot of times they say they don't feel like you are the black voice for the black youth. How do you respond to not be able to connect to that demographic? Well, number one, I think we actually do connect to it. Mm -hmm. Some of our 
biggest supports from HBCUs to African-American young people who are big activists for our campaign. But more than that, look, this is the issue, as you know, as a United States senator. In fact, when I was running for the United States Senate, my pollster said, this isn't an issue that polls in the top five or so of things. Why are you talking about it at every stop? And I go, I'm talking about it because this is a national crisis. And we live in a country that, as Brian Stevenson says, it treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. We live in a country where marijuana, everybody's... (laughs) thinks that somehow we're making some advancements. There were more marijuana arrests in 2017 than all violent crime arrests combined. And people in college campuses aren't getting arrested for marijuana. It's people in communities like ours. And I know people all over this city who have records for doing things that two of the last three presidents admitted to doing. And and what's horrible about that, that most Americans don't understand, is it's a life sentence. Because now you can't get a job, you can't get a business license, you can't get a loan from the bank. And so let my work speak for me. In the United States Senate, I've pushed more than a dozen bills on these issues. It spanned from police accountability all the way to the bill that I actually got passed, the First Step Act, which has already led to the liberation of thousands of people, overwhelmingly black and Latino. The Department of Justice released more than 3,000 federal inmates under the First Step Act back in July. Of those who had their sentences reduced, 91% were black, 4% were Hispanic, and 4% were white, according to the U.S. Sentencing Commission. You can watch more of our conversation with Senator Booker and other presidential candidates. Video is up on npr.org slash offscript. Carry me back to old Virginia. There's where the cotton and the corn and taters grow. There's where the birds warble sweet in the springtime. There's where the old darkest heart and long to go. And now to Virginia, where big elections are just around the corner. Every seat in the state house is up for grabs in next month's election, and there will be a lot of new names on the ballot, including two young men running to be the first black Republicans elected to the legislature in almost 20 years. Ben Pavier from member station VPM in Richmond says they're attempting to carve out a place in a party dominated by President Trump. It's a swampy evening in Richmond, and Garrison Coward is starting to sweat as he goes door to door. He's making the rounds in a mostly white neighborhood called Windsor Farms. Here, the sidewalks are made of brick, and streets are named after English universities. Hey, Mr. Smallfield, how are you? Hey, Gary Coward. I'm running for the Virginia House of Delegates. Oh, hey. Republican nominee just out here introducing ourselves to voters and letting you know there's an upcoming election on November 5th. This district was reliably red. Then came Trump in 2016. In 2017, Virginia Democrats split 15 seats, including this one. Now, Garrison Coward is fighting to take it back after being active behind the scenes in the Republican Party for years. All right, right, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you. You too. As Coward bounces from house to house, I ask him why he's drawn to the Republican Party. He says it comes from his belief that capitalism can help people. You know, we've got folks who are trying to come in and, and grow their businesses and their lives, frankly, and I think the best way to do that is through lower taxes and less government and less regulations on all fronts. Coward is one of two black Republicans this year vying for a seat in the Virginia legislature, where there have been just two black Republicans elected since Reconstruction. Meanwhile, a quarter of the Democratic candidates for the House identify as African-American. D.J. Jordan is the other black Republican candidate. He's a former GOP congressional staffer running for a seat in Northern Virginia. I think the Republican Party here realizes that they cannot win another statewide election without doing better in the African-American community. It's just the math isn't there. 
Jordan thinks the party has a real shot at winning over black voters. Around a quarter of African Americans describe themselves as conservatives. Jordan thinks they'll like his emphasis on individual responsibility and criminal justice reform. And he sees an opening this year. In February, Virginia's Democratic governor and attorney general both admitted to wearing blackface when they were younger. Jordan says Republicans need to make up for lost time. The Republican Party has done a horrible job of being engaged in the African-American community in a very real way, and the Democratic Party has. Jordan thinks Virginia Republicans are on the right path, but their biggest obstacle may be the president. A recent Quinnipiac University poll found four out of five black voters believe Trump is racist. There is a real challenge in voting for a party that you perceive as hostile to your rights and to your community. Leah wright Rigger is a professor at Harvard who studied the history of black Republicans. After the Civil War, African-Americans who could vote often cast their ballot for Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party. That changed with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal. Berger says the GOP needs its own transformational policy to win them back. They would need to propose something that is dramatic, larger than life, and directly speaks to Black communities' issues and concerns in 2019. That resonates with Lamont Bagby, the Democratic lawmaker who heads Virginia's Black Caucus. Earlier this year, he said that to win over Black voters, the GOP would need to change its identity. The African-American candidates that are running on the Republican side are so apologetic for running as a Republican. Uh, And it's not because they've done anything wrong. It's because of what their party stands for. Garrison Coward says he doesn't define himself by his party. He thinks his vision of lower taxes and less regulation will resonate. But he says the president doesn't always help his cause. Look, I don't agree with some of his antics on Twitter. I think that some things that he says is just absolutely out of line. Coward says people are tired of what he calls identity politics. He says people want to have hard conversations, but they'll have to talk over Trump, whose presence is larger and louder than just about anyone else. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. When we sat down with Booker on Saturday, news reports about Tatiana Jefferson had not surfaced yet. She is a black woman who a police officer shot and killed inside her own home in Texas. This is KERA News. I'm Justin Martin. Community activists in Fort Worth have issued a list of demands to the city's leadership in the wake of Tatiana Jefferson's killing in her home by a Fort Worth police officer. The demands are sweeping and the response from the city is mixed. KEI's Christopher Connolly has more. The 11 demands aren't just about a Tatiana Jefferson, a black woman killed by a white police officer, but born out of concerns about policing in Fort Worth's communities of color and a general mistrust of the police department. Pamela Young spoke on behalf of the six community groups that make up the Tarrant County Coalition for Community Oversight. We don't just want to speak to this current situation, this current tragedy. We want to make sure that in this moment we secure justice and that we put some things in place so that this doesn't happen again. For months, the coalition has pushed for the city to set up a resident-led oversight board that would hold the police department accountable and respond to allegations of police misconduct. Earlier this year, the city council agreed to set up such a board, but first the city plans to hire a police monitor to act as an advocate for the community and have that police monitor make recommendations for the oversight board's authority and purview. Young doesn't trust the city's leadership to get it right. The plan that they are proposing is inadequate. It is not effective. It has no teeth. The plan that the city of Fort Worth is proposing is a lie. They call it an independent oversight program. It is nothing 
of the sort. The issue, Young sees, is that the police monitor would report to the same assistant city manager who oversees the police department. She thinks that's a conflict and wants to see a different, more independent arrangement. But Jay Chapa, the assistant city manager who will oversee the police monitor, says all that is up to the city council to decide, not the coalition. Still, Chapa thinks community involvement is important. When you're dealing with a, a issue that is difficult, and very tangled. You can't do it in a vacuum and not one group can get it solved. The coalition has also laid out specific demands relating to the Atatiana Jefferson case, from an independent investigation to a release of more body camera footage related to the shooting. City officials told reporter that those demands won't be met for legal and practical reasons. But Assistant City Manager Fernando Costa says the city is open to discussing some of the other ideas from the coalition. We're not closing the door to discussions with the coalition or with any other legitimate community group that's interested in advancing police community relations, diversity and inclusion, or any other common objective. One idea for advancing police community relations, the coalition says, is to think more broadly about whether the police are the right response in the first place. Pamela Young says they want to see the city create alternative non-police response teams to deal with calls for welfare checks or to deal with mental health crises. If people are continually not getting the help that they need when they call for help from the police, maybe we shouldn't be calling the police in these situations. And so now it's incumbent upon us to come up with some alternatives. Interim Police Chief Ed Krause says the department has started pairing county mental health professionals with police officers when responding to people experiencing mental health crises, and he thinks that's the right approach. But for other types of non-police responses to calls for assistance, he says other cities have been exploring this. We are certainly not um, adverse to looking at that. Um, we would want to determine what calls those were and then make sure the people that do respond are properly trained to handle those types of calls. City officials say their job is not to meet the demands of specific activists, but they are interested in having a productive conversation and finding common ground. I'm Christopher Connolly in Fort Worth. A couple of questions, Gus. Yes, sir. Um, don't mind me asking you guys. <clears throat> um, What's going on with the, um, you know, that policewoman who decided to break into, well, she, she found herself in that uh, in that black man's uh, apartment and she decided to shoot him. What, 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 what happened? What's going on with that? Um, th- there's also a whole other side to this trial uh, that it, that it is still has ramifications because now there are civil procedures going on from, from the, the, the Jean family. There's been an update, I understand, in the killing of Joshua Brown. Now, Joshua Brown was a neighbor of both of Jean's and a key witness in the trial because he explained what he heard and didn't hear. Um, he was killed after testifying. What do, what's the new information? Well, it, it appears clear from what we're hearing uh, today from Dallas police investigators is that the murder of Joshua Brown, and just to, for people who aren't quite familiar with what he did, he was uh, lived across the hallway from Botham Jean. And in the course of the trial, uh, Amber Geiger testified that she had loudly uh, told Botham Jean to let me see your hands, let me see your hands. And, and Joshua Brown was one of the people who um, testified that he didn't quite hear something that clear. So uh, in some circles, it was viewed as kind of discrediting Amber Geiger's testimony in that moment. So that's where he was. He testified on the second day of the trial several couple of weeks ago. 
Um, he was shot and killed last Friday night in the parking lot of his apartment complex in Dallas, not the same complex where Botham Jean was killed. But Dallas police say it is unrelated to his testimony, uh, that this was a drug deal gone bad, that there were three men from Louisiana who had come to Dallas to conduct a, a drug deal with uh, Joshua Brown, um, and that there was a shootout there. One of the suspects is in custody. Dallas police are looking for two others. Uh, but right now, despite the, the flurry of, of conspiracy theories and what was said for several days here, um, it, this does not appear related to his testimony in the Amber Geiger trial. Because he was reluctant to testify. I think he had to finally be subpoenaed. He was concerned about how that might be received uh, among uh, the, the community. Um, but I also understand he had been involved uh, in a shooting or an attempted shooting uh, before this. Is that correct? In his past. Right. Yeah. His, his family's lawyer had told us that he was reluctant to, uh, to testify. Uh, Judge Kemp also told us that he had been reluctant to testify. They weren't really quite sure of all the, the reasons for what was going on. But in November of last year, he was involved in a shooting outside of a, a club in Dallas. Uh, another person at the scene there was, was murdered. Um, so there was some concern from the lawyer that perhaps the, someone was coming to finish the job. Mm. It doesn't appear that that November shooting of last year is even connected to this, that this is something altogether new. Mm. Uh, but, of course, this is all developing here in the last few hours. Yeah. Ed Lavender, I appreciate the update. And really fascinating interview, Ed. Thanks so much. When black political leaders pass away, often history tells their story in a way that assuages the egos and characters of those still alive. Often, how they were known in their day is missed and sanitized. I say that because with the death of Representative Elijah Cummings, a veteran public servant who was born in Baltimore and went to Howard University in D.C., we must remember who the congressman really was. The son of sharecroppers, he once told 60 Minutes that his own father cried when Cummings was first sworn into Congress because he represented what his family could have been if just given an opportunity. Cummings was a lawyer and a state delegate long before he made it to Capitol Hill. He might not have been the most popular brother in the halls of Congress, but he was daggone short into the good fight. You can just ask the guy who sits in the Oval Office. He was still battling to bring justice to the White House when he died, and overall in his career, his words were fierce and his demeanor was prudent and brilliant. In his own words when he took office, quoting from a famous poem. It says, I only have a minute, 60 seconds in it, only a tiny little minute. But eternity is in it. Ain't that the truth? I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. Congressman Elijah Cummings has died. The Maryland Democrat represented his Baltimore district in the House of Representatives for more than 20 years. He was a very important voice for civil rights. And in recent months, he rose to prominence as one of the leaders of Democratic efforts to investigate the Trump administration. Here he is talking to Stephen Skeep about an emoluments probe in 2017. Let me tell you something. I'm going to press on with everything I've got because literally I lose sleep over this. I'm on the line now with Sherilyn Eiffel. She's president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Good morning, Ms. Eiffel. Good morning. You knew Congressman Cummings, so I imagine this is a, a hard day for you. What's on your mind? I'm thinking a lot about what he um, represented, a very particular kind of leadership. First and foremost, what it means to Baltimore. Hmm. Um, you know, Elijah Cummings was really a son of Baltimore, and he loved this town. And people in Baltimore could relate to him, could relate to his life story. Um, and he really was a, a moral force um, in the community. People trusted him in the unrest after Freddie Gray was killed. It was Elijah Cummings who could walk into the crowd uh, and be recognized and, and have people respond to him. 
Um, and so I think what the country has seen of him over the last year is a reflection of what many of us here in Baltimore have known for the 20 years of his leadership, um, a, a man of tremendous, tremendous integrity. Um, he, he managed, I was saying earlier today on social media, humility um, was an important part of his presentation of himself. He always talked about his humble beginnings. It was impossible to hear a speech from Elijah Cummings, whether at a commencement or any um, occasion, without hearing him talk about his mother. Mm. Uh, th- that was important to him, to continue to present in that way and to uh, be an example of what your life can become. Um, but he also had a very fierce commitment to justice and the truth. And I think that's what many Americans have seen as he, uh, in his oversight committee leadership over the past two years, uh, his dogged commitment to the truth, but also his ability to uh, marry that with uh, a kind of humanity. You never lost sight of that when you engaged with Elijah Cummings, that he was a human being, that he responded to you as a human being, even if he viscerally opposed your politics, he was still able to respond uh, and to receive someone as a human being. He was just an extraordinary, extraordinary person yeah. who really put his all into public service. A few months ago, as you know, President President Trump called the congressman's Baltimore district a, quote, a rodent-infested mess. And Congressman Cummings was really, really passionate when he came out and he, he defended that city and its citizens. Let me play you a, a clip of that. As a country, we finally must say that enough is enough, that we are done with the hateful rhetoric, that we are done with the mass shootings, that we are done with the white supremacist domestic terrorists who are terrorizing our country and fighting against everything America stands for. Really strong words there. How important was it that he spoke up for Baltimore? And, and by extension, he really spoke up for black urban neighborhoods around the country that have been targeted by this kind of rhetoric, didn't he? Yeah, it was very important. Uh, you know, I talk about Elijah Cummings being the son of Baltimore. He was very proud of Baltimore proud of his leadership and his representation, honest about the challenges that we faced in our city, uh, but always there for the real substantive solutions that would make a difference. Uh, We had an opportunity to work with him a number of times in the Legal Defense Fund, challenging housing discrimination, uh, co-hosting a town hall on policing reform, uh, working on the effort to try to bring rapid transit to black communities in Baltimore, the red line. Uh, that was all Elijah Cummings being willing to be front and center with uh, pushing for transformation of the city. Uh, so he was he had a clear eye about what the problems were, but he was in the fixing business. He was not mm. in the rhetoric business. And um, and so it was really important to him to not back down from any challenge to the integrity of Baltimore City. In the fixing business. I like that. You'll miss him, I imagine. We all will. Yeah. Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP's Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Thank you for having me. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday. October 19, 2019, so I have been told this is our compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, suggestions, questions, 
That number six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. That number again six zero five three one three. Five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The late United States Congressman Elijah Cummings, victim of white supremacy, passing away at the age of sixty eight said many times uh, that is always a disgrace uh, that right there should be motivation uh, to go about solving this problem as soon as possible uh, 68 that is a disgrace and I think that's about it what the average is uh, for black males in this part of the world might even be a bit high but I think that's pretty close to what the average life expectancy is again all of that is just uh, a disgraceful indictment of racist man racist woman racist child <clears throat> few things before we get started uh number one we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive uh you can hit my blog racism hyphen notes dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button is in the top right corner of the page uh also we are on Cash app. It's linked in the description. Cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested for <clears throat> the past decade plus. I hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. <clears throat> For folks who are not into all of the technology, you can drop an email and we can get you a physical mailing address. Uh, also, you can visit my wish list at Amazon.com. It is under Gus T. Renegade. Enormous gratitude to all the investors who have nabbed items <clears throat> over the past 10 years. I hope the cows has provided accurate, constructive information on what it means to be white what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, and what non-white people can and should be doing to solve this problem as soon as possible so that, you know, 68, oh man, I'm just getting started. Like, what are you talking about? Things to share. Wow, the list is long. Oops. Wrong tab. All right. Number one, U.S. Senator... New Jersey, Cory Booker, cowbell. He is one of the candidates uh, who is running for second place. I've already, you know, made my definitive conclusion for election 2020. Four more years. But U.S. Uh, Senator Cory Booker running for second place. He uh, said that he understands he knows what it's like to be a black man and subjected to racism, white supremacy. So I go back to Puff's question. What does it matter? 
victim of white supremacy, non-white person, what does it matter? They have a white parent. That would be question one for listeners. Question two, so if Mr. Booker said to you, hey, I'm a black man. I know what it's like to be a victim of racism and to be mistreated because you are a black man. If he were to say that to you, do you think, you know, hey, he just said something that I think is true. What would your thoughts or response be if Cory Booker said that to you? First question, does it matter? He makes a statement like that. Is it important that Mr. Booker has a white parent? Questions? Next, <clears throat> Mr. Booker used the term specifically uh, implicit racial bias. I do not uh, use that term. I think frequently when whites use it, it's used as a way to obfuscate their dedication to white supremacy racism. However, I looked up the definition for implicit today. <clears throat> way down further uh, on the list. If you look up the definition for implicit, you will also find, <clears throat> I'll read it exactly. You, oh, oh, I passed it, I passed it. Oh, there it is, okay. Or it's not even that far down. It's the second definition. With no qualification or question, period. Absolute. And the example sentence is an implicit faith in God, meaning an unquestioned, absolute faith in God with no qualification. Hmm. That, if we're saying that there is implicit racism, absolute, unquestioned, and without qualification, now that sounds closer to the truth. White dedication to white supremacy racism is absolute. It is unquestioned, implicit. That sense makes sense when it's used to suggest that, you know, they weren't thinking, this was unconscious, I just didn't know, I was ignorant. All of that, that is malarkey of the highest order. Deception, really. Be accurate, be as accurate as I can. That's deception, deliberate in my opinion. But that other definition, that seems, that seems logical. Folks can share thought on that. Next, uh, the Emmett Till sign <clears throat> in Mississippi. They said this is the fourth dedication. I'd like to know uh, how much money they spent on the placard and where that money came from. Was that donated? Is that out of the state budget? Is that taxpayers' money? That would be one question I'd be curious to know. They said uh, acid was thrown on the sign in addition to it being shot and thrown in the river and spray painted and all the rest. Acid. So we're upset. Let's pick someone. We'll we'll take the father of gynecology, uh, J. Marion Sims. We'll take him. Medical apartheid. Uh, let's say we, we get together. We're going to meet up at Central Park. It'll be Thomas in New York and all the other cows listeners who can get to New York. We're going to go put acid on the statue for J. Marion Sims. Really? I'm not even sure, like, what that project would look like. Like, where would we obtain the acid? And could we do this without, you know, alerting suspicion uh, from the white authorities? 
would we be able to do this? Did they have security at the uh, J. Marion Sims statue? Just dedication. That that right there is implicit to have these type of things happen repeatedly, that this is a part of white culture in Mississippi, that we will take time to go shoot at the statue or throw acid on the statue or throw the whole statue in the river or whatever we can come up with it today, just whatever we have time and things that we have around the house to do a little vandalism. Dedication. Next, uh, the report on maternal mortality rates. Now, I know some folks have said that they think that that is false. I present them because I think it's significant uh, that there's so many reports that are talking about this now. I did not see reports on a regular basis in mainstream white-dominated outlets talking about difficulties uh, that black mothers have in pregnancy and maternal mortality rates, infant mortality rates. I just don't recall seeing that uh, before 2017 on a really regular manner and citing CDC uh, statistics on just in my view, that is significant. Uh, I've always said we're in a system of white supremacy, so it wouldn't surprise me if that's accurate. Racists, they are known to lie. Uh, I just, I find it fascinating that the New York Times, New York Public Radio, ProPublica, so many major outlets devote lots of time and energy to discussing this subject matter. Not that they shouldn't, but just there's so many different aspects of white supremacy racism that get, you know, little to no attention at all. They find black people hanging, you know, by a noose and that garners no attention at all. Anyway, next, uh, programs for the week. Uh, we should be here on Tuesday. I said I was going to brag about what I what I ate today. What did I eat today? I had they had the segment on the foster care uh, children, black male taking in. They said 50 foster care children and he gave the meal for the day and he said fried chicken, barbecue chicken, macaroni and cheese. And I said, wait a minute. They said fried chicken and barbecue like you both. <laughs> man, the barnyard pimp. Uh. I have not had a meal, not that I could think of, where there were two different types of chicken. Maybe my memory is bad, but barbecue chicken, fried chicken, macaroni and cheese. He did say collard greens, but I do know that many people cook collard greens with meat products in them and other things that make them a little less healthier than they could be. Uh, and I don't remember the rest, but I just thought, wow, that is... I would be hurting. I would not have a whole lot to eat uh, if I was at that table. I would not recommend that type of diet. Uh, what did I eat today? I had a smoothie after I did yoga this morning. Uh, my smoothie, I had uh, beets, kale, apple, orange, fresh ginger, uh, wheatgrass, pomegranate. Wow, I love pomegranate. Uh, what else was uh, orange with the peel? Fresh blueberries, macadamia nut milk, zucchini, peanut butter, dates, hemp seeds, banana. I think that's it. Was absolutely amazing. Was thinking we should do smoothies at the retreat. 
Uh, and then for dinner, I had I made curry, made the curry myself. Uh, I had uh, yams, uh, collard greens. Uh, let's see, peppers, different varieties, mushrooms, green onions, fresh ginger, fresh garlic, acorn squash, uh, and uh, they have a plant-based fish product. Not that I advocate doing all the processed, but I did. I love seafood. That was difficult for me to let go. And I just found this not too long ago. It's delicious. It has been a long time since I've had fish. So my memory about what fish tastes like might be kind of bad, but this seems like they got it. They did it pretty well. Uh, and it's plant-based. Uh, but I had that uh, with rice and the curry that I made. Wow. Absolutely delish. Uh, the retreat. I think I will have to cook something. I'm not sure what, but I will have to cook something, not because I'm, you know, a fantastic uh, chef by any stretch of the imagination. My cobbler was devoured in 48 hours, but uh, I am not into eating bad food. Uh, I'm not into uh, suffering just so that I can, you know, come on the radio program or do a yoga class or whatever and say, oh yeah, I'm vegan uh, and go home and suffer and eating cauliflower and green beans that are, you know, bland and terrible. Like I am about eating tasty uh, delicious food. I was tubby for a reason. I like to eat. I think most people uh, like to eat and food should be uh, delicious. We have taste buds for a reason, I think. So they should be used. I'm all about eating, you know, hearty, really well-flavored, uh, wonderful food. I hope we'll have lots of that at the retreat. But I say all that because Dr. Ruby Lathan should be here on Tuesday. So if folks have thoughts about Eating well, if your diet looks closer to what they were eating at the foster house, barbecue, chicken, fried chicken, macaroni and cheese, and then whatever else you can fit on the plate. If your diet looks closer to that and you would like to change it to be a little better, Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Dr. Lathan should be back with us uh, with maybe some recipes uh, for parents specifically. I had a black mom uh, who was talking to me, who said, you are absolutely right. Eating better is important. I want to do better, but I did not have healthy eating habits growing up. Me too. Uh, and it's really hard for me to try to figure out new foods to eat. Me too. Uh, it's difficult if you've been eating fried chicken, barbecue chicken, macaroni and cheese to switch to now hummus and beets and carrots. Like what? I totally get it. And especially if you have children, you might not have all that time to experiment and go try different things, whether it's going to a restaurant and trying different things or whether it's just going to the grocery store and I'm going to buy a bunch of groceries and, you know, try to cook some different things and see what I like. You don't have the same time. It's not as easy to do that as a parent. I get it. I don't have parents, but I get it. We will address that with Dr. Lathan. I'm not sure if she has uh, I'll ask. I'm not sure if she has children, but that's that is an important one because I've heard that from a number of parents. And what do the children eat? Maybe you can eat your goofy smoothies with beets and whatever, and that's grand for you. But I have a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a five-year-old, and they do not want beets. And especially if they've already had a taste of, you know, Cheetos and chicken nuggets and the rest of it. I mean, I have already seen that. That can be difficult to break. Those food habits get established. I was going to say very early. Those food habits get established in the womb. I think I mentioned that book last week. You are what your grandparents ate. Anyway, all of that, again, the retreat in Florida, December 28th to January 1, 
roughly 35 minutes from the Orlando airport. Uh, found a spot to make it cheaper. The original price was nine twenty-five. We were able to get that down to seven thirty for five days, four nights, plant-based meals, no fried chicken, but delicious food. Plant-based meals prepared by Chef Nadira. Gus T will cook something. I'm not sure what, but I will cook something. I will be teaching yoga every day, exercise, eat well. We'll have workshops on counter-racism and healthy eating. Uh, Chef Nadira will be doing a workshop on how uh, people can go back to their houses and cook tasty food, tasty veggies uh, on their own. Uh, So drop an email. Uh, The deadline, I extended it to October 24 to try to accommodate. People said, hey. 925 is kind of steep. Can you see if you can make it a little more accessible? 730. If that helps, you can email untiljustice at gmail.com. If you have questions, the updated information is on the blog as well. Racism hyphen notes dot October October 24 deadline uh, for deposits. Again, if you have any questions, suggestions, thoughts, Feel free to share. The date's again December 28th to January 1. Uh, Oh, I didn't finish. Programs for this week. Uh, So Dr. Ruby Lathan should be here on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we have a white man should be here. uh, Professor uh, Colin Gordon. Uh, He is a white man at the University of Iowa, and he just had a book published called Citizen Brown. It is not a constructive book at all. I'm really uh, disgruntled about having to sacrifice my weekend time that I could have spent uh, cooking, napping, doing yoga, practicing teaching yoga, anything, talking on the phone, cutting my toenails. I am reading this book to prepare for his visit on Wednesday. The book is about... Uh, the St. Louis area specifically, uh, St. Louis County, Ferguson, that area specifically, and talking about uh, specific policy measures that have taken place over the past 60 years or so, maybe a little more than that, 70 years, uh, that have resulted in Michael Brown Jr., uh, targeted persecution of black citizens in Ferguson and beyond, St. Louis area, like I said, Um, how all of this happened and specific policies that have been put in place. Boy, oh boy. I could flip it open because I have highlighted metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. He doesn't say white people did this. White people did that. It's all uneven citizenship and metaphor after metaphor after metaphor and being very indirect. A lot of pussyfooting uh, and talking about terrorism. That's what it is. Call things by their proper name. Uh, And he does not do that at all. So it is not constructive uh, or even entertaining reading uh it is oof, uh, but what i'm gonna slog through it and wednesday we will uh speak to professor gordon about who his intended audience was for this book and why he uses so many metaphors uh, he's not an english professor unless i'm mistaken why there's so many metaphors why he is so circumspect uh in talking about the problem whites wednesday 8 p.m east oh man So that's Tuesday through Saturday, man. Tuesday through Saturday. That's all you have to remember. Tuesday through Saturday, Dr. Lathan, Professor Gordon, new book. I don't know what it is. People have suggestions. You can share that today as well. We'll try to decide by Tuesday 
new book on Thursday, Workplace Racism Friday, and then Compensatory Call-In on Saturday. So Tuesday through Saturday, boop, context of white supremacy, normal time, every day, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, working our way right on through autumn. Uh, speaking of metaphors, there were quite a few, uh, as I said, or there are quite a few in the uh, book that we're going to discuss on Wednesday, uh, I would request that for this broadcast, specifically, we not use metaphors. Race soldiers like Professor Gordon, suspected race soldier, Professor Gordon, uh, they skillfully uh, will use analogies, similes, comparisons uh, to spread deception, confusion, uh, generally to obfuscate their crime, white supremacy, racism. Uh, another tactic, they will take two separate entities and insist that they are absolutely identical, exact same thing. Frequently, that is not the case at all. It is master deception racism. Victims of white supremacy like myself, we have been exposed to that. In fact, the uh, audio segment that played uh, today, Mama Glow, victim of white supremacy, she was reporting uh, about her program uh, to help black mothers, give them resources. That is spectacular. Nothing incorrect about that uh, at all. Uh, Latham Thomas uh, is the victim of white supremacy's name. Uh, but in that segment, she said that she felt like Harriet Tubman doing this work by darkness and bringing the babies to light. Now, that's a metaphor. I tell people to inspect metaphors because I say, now I'm thinking, is this the same Harriet Tubman who was on Wanted Posters? Is your face on wanted posters for the work that you do as a doula? Wonderful work. Like I said, it's not a criticism. It's just that's why I say really interrogate those metaphors, because a lot of times the things that are being compared, like, really? <laughs> Step back, like, really? Are people trying to kill you? I thought white people were not like in a metaphorical sense. I thought racists were literally trying to kill Harriet Tubman, had a bounty for her death or capture, I thought, unless I've been misinformed about U.S. history. Unless that's happening, I would say that that's not an accurate comparison. Be mindful of the metaphors. I will prompt about that frequently. I will invoke these metaphors when we don't have logic. Uh, we haven't come to a conclusion, maybe. We might be still thinking ourselves. That's totally fine. But inserting a metaphor generally does not help. Uh, last few comments, the report on the school in Virginia, the coon man, they had a white teacher who called a student a niglet. Again, it is mandatory as an attempted counter racist parent. I don't have children, not on, <laughs> not trying to get haughty about, uh, what parents should be doing. I don't have children. That's it. Uh, as an attempted counter-racist parent, it is mandatory uh, that you speak to your offspring uh, about white supremacy, racism, and sexual predators, uh, because this sort of thing is very likely to happen, especially if you are sending your child to public schools, uh, so that they already have a code about what to do. Now, when I heard this, uh, my thought, I immediately was in the question lane and was like, oh, man, if that is a codified young 10-year-old, justice codified young 12 year old before you go and report this race soldier call your parents or whatever you know code you have worked out before you go get in one question uh 
ma'am? What is a niglet? And write it down. Or if you got your phone, whammo, pull it out and get, uh-huh. Okay. All right. And now we can go tell a call. Niglet? This is supposed to be from someone who is ignorant about racism, white supremacy, and you didn't even call me a nigger. You refined it. Niglet. I don't even have a sound effect for niglet. Let's see. Did I miss anything? Oh, yes, I did. Back to Cory Booker. Don't forget that question. Don't forget that question. (laughs) Does it matter? Victim of white supremacy with a white parent. In that segment, they talked about the uh, legal changes that they made uh, in New Jersey, criminal justice reform, as they call it. And they said the result, looking at the population that has been released, they said it's 91% black, 4% Latino, whatever that means, and 4% white. Now, if there were 100 people standing outside right now, your residence, apartment, whatever, 100 people, if you're at work, they were 100 people standing outside your office door right now. 91 of them are black. Four of them are Latino, whatever that means. You go to pick up the phone to report this to security. Are you going to say, whoa, there is a gang of black and brown people outside my office. 91 of them are black. That's the percentages that they said. 91% black, 4% Latino, whatever that means. They also said 4% white. Based on those statistics, they could have said, we have a problem in New Jersey with enforcement office terrorizing blacks and whites. And the reforms have been so successful that we've had 91% of blacks and 4% of whites who have been released. They could have said it that way. It is a, in my view, deliberate act of racism. Anytime a white person puts those words together, black and brown, black and Latina, any combination of it, black and Latina, Latin X, any, all of that is deliberate white supremacy racism. Victims of racism, we do that a lot. Confusion is lethal. If you are a victim of racism, train yourself not to say that and to encourage others not to say that. If those are the, I had to do that. Remember that segment I played on the program? It was earlier this year. They were talking about Seattle and the libraries. And they said every student, not some, not, you know, half, every child who has been purged from the Seattle public library system is black. And we were, I was trying to talk to a black guest, a black mom on our program, and she kept saying black and brown. And I had to say, no, they didn't mention one brown Latin X, Latino, Latina, none of the above. They said exclusively black children were purged from the library. If it's 91% black and 4% Latina, then we don't need to have any language that in any way, shape, form suggests that there is any sort of equality in how black people and Latinos, Latinos, whatever that is, how they are mistreated. If I'm being in error, please Speak up, speak loud. Number again is 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like 
to participate. If you know you're in a noisy environment, please make sure you use that mute button so we do not have to uh, grapple with unnecessary noise in the background. You can unmute yourself, use your five minutes to speak, and then mute your line again. That would be super uh, appreciated. Helps preserve the audio quality of the broadcast. Uh, and if you could hold it to five minutes, that also would be super appreciated. Just make sure everyone gets at least one chance to share. And then if you have additional comments, questions, suggestions, uh, we should have time for you to add that as well. Star six one, if you would like to chime in. Uh, first few folks with a hand up. Uh, line should be. Hmm. Well, uh, you'll have to give me a moment. The switchboard is not performing correctly. Uh, once <laughs> get that worked out. Okay, we'll try that again. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Line should be open. Proceed. Hello, guys. Heard. heard both of you. Uh, let's get B in Toronto. Hi, thank you. Um, greetings to you, guests, callers, and listeners. Um, so, yes, again, thank you so much for um, the the the, uh, the news reels that you've put together um, that we have a chance to listen to, because uh, it is very important to be informed as to what's happening. Um, when I was hearing about um, the rededication to um, Emmett Till um, Memorial, uh, I, what I noticed that's really uh, interesting about it is that there is um, there is um, a, a piece to it where um, it's with the understanding that um, the dead should be able to rest in peace. And um, whether or not this is true, um, it's it's uncertain, but it, it definitely talks to the intent of whites who throw acid on the memorial, um, shoot bullet holes through it, um, putting it into the river. Uh, and, and these are descendants of the murderers. Um, or friends of the descendants of the murderers who killed, um, who murdered Emmett Till, um, doing these things uh, in Mississippi, and it it really speaks to their intent of not wanting Emmett, a 14 year old boy who was lied upon by a white woman, and then uh, stalked and terrorized and beaten and murdered, to never have him rest in peace. Um, if if it is true about the saying of the dead being able to rest in peace, um, it, it just really speaks to the evilness um, of the characters of, of you know these types who who engage in such terroristic activities. Um, the other thing that's also interesting too is the talk about the mortality rate. Um, uh, of uh, um, black children um, and how black mothers are having difficulty um, with uh, childbirth um, or even with uh, conceiving um, uh, black children. Uh, it, it makes me wonder uh, as, um, as well as to whether the stories are true. And also um, it makes me wonder as to you know, 
what types of chemicals are being put into the foods, into the medication, um, in order to have this occur, because it it wasn't an issue before. Um, before the issue uh, that whites were claiming were that uh, blacks were having too many children, even though it's um, uh, Indians and Asians, Indians from India and Asians um, that have far more children than black people. But um, according to whites, um, any individual um, black person who has a child, uh, one is just too many. Um, So it makes me wonder as to what are they deliberately doing to curtail this uh, if if the uh, data is true. Um, and, uh, yes, uh, just with observation of, of how they operate at work, um, in life, there's, I just find that they're just, um, you know, they're very terroristic and they're very miserable. It's, it's, if, if this is, I mean, if, if terrorizing people is what they characterize as their best day, or their best living uh, experiences, it's it's pretty despicable about their character. And um, that's just an insight that I have um, based on the observations um, of how whites operate and uh, those who are white identified, how they operate. I, um, I, I don't feel a, I, I don't feel a sadness towards them. I just, think it's just despicable um, that this is how they choose to impart such misery. It, it just has to stop. Uh, thank you so much, and I leave my line. Much obliged to be in Toronto. I do want to say really quick on the maternity statistics about Black mothers. They said in the report that I played this evening from WNYC, they said that from the New York Times report on this matter, that black moms were three to four times more likely to die in childbirth. They said from the time that report came out to now, now it's four to five, according to the CDC. I just thought, wow, that, I mean, what you said now, again, racists do lie a lot. So they could be lying. It could be. We do have Flint. I think uh, Cory Booker, they could have asked him, probably did ask him about the lead situation in uh, Newark because that's pretty bad as well. And you got a lot of black people there. So uh, they do lots of chemical biological warfare against black people in a variety of ways. So it could be evidence of just more of the war of white supremacy. But that did stick out to me as uh, significant Uh, and just about the their best day being terrorizing someone. This is not a program where we talk about films, and I'm not going to, but wow, if you have not seen the film Patton, it's an older film. Uh, Mr. Fuller uh, will talk about it from time to time. You don't even need to watch the whole film because I think it's kind of long. But just watch the first five minutes where Patton, he has the American flag, red, white, and blue in the background, and he's talking to you. But it's like he's talking to the troops, but the camera's from the perspective that you're one of the troops. So he's talking to get you motivated for battle. That speech, right? I think I've played it on the program before as a sound clip, but that uh, five-minute little speech right there, that with the red, white, and blue in the background, Dr. Welsing talked about that, Dr. Kanban too, that right there, essence of white culture. And he, 
We're going to kill them by the bushel. Oh, I love it so. <laughs> that that's your best. That's your fun. That's what I love. That's that Chris Kyle. That's my fun. That's what I enjoy. We white people kill for fun. Just the first five minutes of Patton. Thank you for your patience, Draptomania. If you have commentary, you should be with us as well. Uh, hi, Gus. Uh, and um, hi, uh, B. also, and all the callers and the listeners. And thanks for taking my call. Um, and um, I do definitely agree with you. Um, as I'm becoming more clear on, um, uh, you know, white supremacy, racism, and how it functions, um, I do see definitely, um, and, you know, just learning more about um, narcissism. Um, and actually, um, I was introduced to the, uh, that whole term um, listening to your show. Um, Raj used to speak a lot about that. Um, I miss Raj. I wish, um, you know, he would call in a little, you know, I wish um, I had an opportunity to hear him, you know, again, by calling in and stuff. I thought he was very um, intelligent and gave a lot of insight on your show, but um, just from studying and researching that um, psychopathy and uh, narcissism, um, you see the correlation between white supremacy is basically um, uh, the line is so um, so thin between the two. It's almost like it's just, it's like the same exact thing, but um, they are definitely um, dedicated um, and even hearing it said, overheard, like they 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 make a commitment. Um, I've heard it said um, personally from um, from some um, uh, minions or you know some of uh, the um, more confused um, victims that work on behalf um, of. Um, uh, the white supremacist, um, basically how they are, uh, you know, you know that they're doing the bidding of, um, of the white supremacist. Um, somebody is, you know, misinforming them and they're doing their bidding and it's like they're dedicated. It's like they, and they take pride and, um, they get, um, um, it's like they have an orgasm from um, terrorizing um, us. Um, they really get a kick out of it. They um, plan. Um, it's like, you know, they have schedules. Um, of um, Even by listening to the show, you can hear, like, the dedication. Like, for instance, when you hear the um, gentleman from um, Florida, when he speaks, it sounds as if, um, like, you know, at times that they, these people have like um, schedules. Um, even B, when she talks about how um, they terrorize her, they have like it's like they have shifts of when they're gonna. They plan when they're going to do certain things, and they get together and they collude and they laugh and they just you know you they just doing the job of somebody else just so they can feel good. It's like, you know, they use these other people to abuse you. So it's abuse by proxy and they are really, really taking delight and um, they get off on this type of stuff. Um, I, in, in regards to your question about Cory Booker, um, I definitely, because he cannot pass as, um, as a white person, I definitely do not think that um, the fact that he has a white parent um, makes any difference when um, police officer, law enforcement sees him, um, they see a black man. So um, basically, um, you know, no matter how he functions, when he's visible to the public or police, and if nobody knows who he, who he is, they're going to treat him exactly like a black man. So no, the fact that he has a, black, a white mother, um, 
because, like I said, he cannot pass as a white man. No, I don't think that has any bearing. Um, So he can definitely get treated just like the rest of us. Um, And I wanted to ask you a question. Um, You was talking about the fish. Um, You know, I'm a vegan too. So um, I was wondering, what is the name of that fish that you ate? Because I love fish too. So I wanted to know, um, because I use like, um, sometimes like when I'm trying to um, do the fish, I'll use um, uh, seaweed. Um, because I make sometimes like vegan um, grits, so I'll um, do the vegan cheese and our um, nutri uh, nutri uh, nutri um, yeast, and um, uh, I'll make it like in uh, cheesy grits, um, vegan style, and I'll put the seaweed in it, and I'll put a little um, what is the name of that? Uh, the the stuff that you use on um, Obey, you know, to give it like that fish taste. So I was wondering, what is the name of the um, fish that you use tonight? And that was all the commentary I had. Uh, uh, I feel some type of way about (laughs) endorsing a brand on the program since I'm not on their payroll. Uh, I can, I can email it to you if, uh, they put me on their payroll, then maybe I'll consider it. They can, you know, sponsor and send us some items for the retreat. Then absolutely, I'd be happy to give them a plug. But yeah, I feel some type of way. Uh, plus, it's probably some somebody classified as white who owns this business. I suspect so. Right. Um, but yes, I will send you the link so you can see the ingredients and see if it's something you know you need to eat. And I think they have a okay. Fi- yep, they do. They have a finder. Um, yeah, to see, you know, which stores stock it in your area. Okay, wonderful. I really appreciate that. And then, because, you know, um, um, being plant-based, uh, we get pretty, I know I get excited when I see things that, you know, I can eat. And like you said, just because you're plant-based, it does not mean that you have to be bland or eat, um, you know, just like your food is tasteless. I've always eat, um, used, um, you know, spices and herbs and things to spice my food up. So you can still make your food taste good because if you don't, um, you'll get bored with it. So, um, you know, um, hopefully now that um, this my situation is going to be changing as far as my, um, you know, getting this job, maybe I'll get an opportunity to do a little bit more um, cooking from scratch and things like that, like I used to, especially when I first became a, um, a vegan. So I'm looking forward to it. And um, that's all I have, uh, Gus, and thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Uh, try to cook more. Encourage folks um, not to eat out. That's a one way we can commit to counter-racism and reduce opportunities for racists to put things on our plate and our mouth, uh, cutting down on eating out. I think Black African recommended that recently, um, trying to simple things that we can make, like spaghetti sauce or salsa. I did that this week. I went to the farmer's market uh, on Sunday. That has become like one of my pleasures. I love going to the farmer's market because they have such an abundance of really uh, fresh uh, produce. Uh, here it's just uh, amazing Um, but yeah I went to the farmer's market and loaded up I got all the ingredients uh, and made a big batch uh, of salsa used it for uh, tortillas I used it for burritos absolutely delicious Uh, way better than the stuff that I would get in store where they have all those preservatives and everything else like this you can make it yourself you know exactly what's in it it doesn't take a whole lot of time you don't need you know the best blender in the world uh to make uh salsa and it's supposed to have texture to it anyway so i mean 
yeah, try to do that as best you can. Save a little money and you can eat a little better. Be really, really try to be mindful about what you eat. Food is super important. Race soldiers wage huge war with food. Try to be mindful about what we eat. Now, drink more water. Oh, good. I um, I definitely cook now, but I just like to um, there was different recipes I was trying when um, I had you know um, you know my income was different and the space that I had was my own. So I'm hoping, hopefully, I'll be able to change that. It's just that I'm not able to do the experiments as much, but I definitely do cook though. Definitely, I don't eat out a lot at all. Right on, right on. Much obliged, Draftomania. Uh, other folks that we have missed totally. Uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Hello. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry to cut you off. Thank you so much for taking my call. I hope everyone's having the best evening okay. they can have. Um, regarding Cory Booker, I would believe him. Um, according to Wikipedia for how much that's worth, it states that his parents. It says his parents, Carolyn Rose and Carrie Alfred Booker, were among the first black executives. So his parents, I've known, and I think that's come up before, that they are very light-skinned, but his parents are black. He is black. We know due to the raping of slaves and so on and so forth that a lot of black people come out lighter, and you may not be sure. As far as I know, and he has to, I have heard him state his parents are black. Yes, he is like his parents are black. Just like I think the journalist Rock Newman, he is very light. He did the DNA. He identifies as black because his parents identify as black. He, so as far as I know, as far as he has said, he is a black person. Now, you can go into policies, whatever, but he is a black person. If he said it happened to him, why would I not believe him? We go along and believe white people when they say things. If that's what happened to him, that's what happened to him. It hasn't, that happening to him hasn't advanced his career, so there's no reason for him to lie about it to make him sound wonderful, because it hasn't. Um, I don't know if you talked about this in workplace racism with the, the bailiff and the judge, Tammy Kemp, in the Amber Geiger trial, the murderer. Um, she, the judge was on TV and explained that the bailiff was, yes, the bailiff was patting her hair, but I guess that's some process they do to make sure there were no weapons or anything in her hair. I have no reason not to believe Judge Kemp, after she defended what she did with Amber Geiger, she didn't back down from it, and whether we like it or not, as Mr. Lewis says, stand by your work so we can not like it, not like it. She went on TV and talked to other outlets and stood by what she did and explain what the bailiff did. So I would tend to believe her. Um, so those are other things. Um, can't think of anything else right now. I just really want to correct those and that we should really be mindful. I know we see pictures and optics, and especially when they are negative towards black people, we all need to step back. That's why when I said I shouldn't give it a hug, I just stopped watching. I was like, I don't know. Or I see a hug. This, <laughs> I don't think this is good, but I'm going to back up and move on to something else so I don't have anything positive or negative to say about those types of situations. So we must be mindful of that. And congratulations on the vegan food. That sounds delicious. And keep it up. Thank you. 
She said, I don't know if it's worth the congratulations, but much obliged, much obliged. Uh, appreciate the information on Mr. Booker. Now, I thought it has been a while, so I could just be in error. He has a documentary film called Street Fight. Uh, came out in 2005. Now, I watched this documentary, but it has been a while. I would have bet like a significant amount of coins that he talked about having a white parent there and his time at Stanford and all. This was like way back earlier in his career. I might be totally in error. Maybe he didn't say that there, but strive for accuracy. Thank you for getting that in. Mr. Booker has two non-white parents. What I said wouldn't even apply because he doesn't have a white parent. So strive for accuracy. I am going to go back and watch that documentary again. Uh, Street Fight, 2004, 2005, sorry, 2005. And uh, yeah, maybe I just messed up. The good old Al Sharpton is in it, so I have to watch it. Uh, other folks, much obliged. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Um, good evening, Gus. Um, um, Nigley. <laughs> I, had to, I didn't catch it at first because they bleached out the nig, but they kept the lick. I said, are they saying Nigley? And that's some plantation slang, Gus. That's like, um, you know, I guess the definition of a nigglet would be a little nigger. You know, like, uh, you know, the, the little baby blacks on the plantation. Those are the nigglets, and these are our niggers. And that's a nigger. You know, I guess that's the female. You know, I'm just trying to get my plantation vocabulary. Um, Talk about it. <laughs> Elijah Cummings. <laughs> Elijah Cummings, a victim of white supremacy. I think I might need to ponder that one, Gus. I don't know. Um, four times Emmett Till. Um, statue has been disintegrated or desecrated. Um, man, bulletproof glass around the sign now, like that's probably has some anti um, graffiti agent to it. But why are they putting up Emmett Till memorials? Like reinforces white supremacy. Um, put up statues and monuments of murderers of black people as part of their um, white supremacists. You know, that's what they do. And then we turn around and put up the same monuments and statues of the people they murdered. I mean, it was reinforcing the actual murderers. In my opinion, it's, I just don't, I don't see the, I just don't agree with it. I, I just, you know, I could be wrong, but it just, like, if we took away all the white supremacist statues and monuments and just left up the Emmett Till monuments and all of the monuments of the people they killed, then it's still telling the story of them murdering it. It's the same. I, I just don't get it. But um, Lee Marvel, um, I think we're all safer with him in prison. I know he was a teenager. He was being influenced by Mr. Muhammad. Um, but as a teenager, you should know better than killing people day after day, sniping people through a hole in the trunk of the car. Man, he's very dangerous. I think that, uh, in my opinion, he needs to stay confined until he um, passes, makes his demise um, for what he's done. I killed, like, what, 11 people? I mean, they were just, I mean, and I was so shocked they were black. I was like, oh, man, I mean. I would have, I would have lost, I mean, a kidney or something. I would have bet those weren't black people, but it, apparently it was. So, 
Um, I didn't get why he was giving Corey Bell Booker the cowbell because I I didn't know he was into women. And then um, you know, like uh, like the and I was you kept saying he had a white power. I was thinking like the sister that just spoke. Um, you know, I've seen his parents before. They're definitely black, but they look they're, they're of a lighter complexion. Uh, sort of like Steph Curry. You know, his two parents are black, but they're not very melanated. Um, and he came out looking the way he did. Um, but uh, what he did in North to black people to appeal to the white people to propel his career to U.S. Senator, um, terrible. He's a, t- a terrible person. Um, he he does not care about black people at all, is my opinion. And um, when they asked him earlier in the campaign, if he thought the cool man should step down, he was emphatic, no. Um, you know, um, as far as I know, the, pres- the only person I know to release a bunch of prisoners so far has been Donald Trump. Um, the Atiana Jefferson. Um, man, I advocate for single black females to get a dog. Um, the bigger, the meaner, the better. Um, I know a cow's listener right now who's selling King Corsos, which is a big, bad dog. Um, but that would have been barking. It would have been in the window. Might have deterred what happened. Um, she had a firearm, um, which I'm sure they're going to use as part of the defense for everything. But she had the right to have one in Texas and to protect her property, especially if she heard someone who pulled the, um, who was in the side of her house. Uh, the pro- protocol for police, um, as per the, um, the Harris County Sheriff, a former Harris County Sheriff, um, she was on the news, um, and she said that they are supposed to pull in front of the residents um, when they're doing a wellness check with their lights on, which might have prevented this from happening as well. Uh, but Fort Worth, I was shocked that it's a pretty big city. It's the 13th largest city, got about 900,000 people. Um, and it's in the same area, the same metropolitan area of Dallas, where Boston Jean was murdered in a similar fashion. Um, last thing I wanted to say, Joshua Brown, I watched him live, his testimony. I thought he was a terrible witness. He stood out to me. The story didn't fit to me. I just knew he was not clean. It was something that wasn't adding up. So when this happened, it was like confirmation. Because I saw it, you know, especially when I read the story surrounding the shooting. I should say it didn't shock me. And I mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Thank you for making sure. Strive for accuracy. Say that all the time. Strive for accuracy. Mr. Booker, black parents. I was in error. I am going to watch that documentary again. Just see why I got that incorrect uh concept in my head that he had a white parent but strive for accuracy thank you for giving the additional uh info uh i'll save that for later I was Can I be ask, heard? i'll save that for later i was gonna ask a question about the amber geiger trial yes sir uh retired firefighter in florida yes sir greetings gus greetings everyone uh yes uh george Scott was uh, quite dramatic in those first five minutes. Uh, it's uh, a bit of irony uh, that myself and uh, Mr. Fuller share a lot of uh, uh, similarities in uh, movies 
in in interest in as far as in uh war is concerned a lot of the a lot of the suggestions that he's brought up i have already have seen uh and even before i even met him uh but uh anyway uh, what was uh what was uh, the question that you were asking well it's void now or at least one of them uh about mr booker because uh i was in error i thought he had a white parent and he does not so you know that was that was tied to the question so it's kind of void now oh well i mean even even in general standpoint uh a uh a uh non-white person that uh one of their parents is white i mean that that non-white person didn't have anything to do with it <laughs> Uh, really, and uh, there is uh, tons of evidence that indicates that uh, no matter who is the parent of a non-white person, they are still mistreated. Uh, I would, my thoughts on Mr. Booker uh, being that he was a professional politician in uh, Newark, New Jersey, uh, and uh, they from from my understanding, I could be wrong. There are still, or at least three to four, of the individuals who participated in Minister Malcolm X's murder, uh, who are still alive and well. Matter of fact, the uh, actual individual who uh, pointed a shotgun at Malcolm X's chest and uh, shot him in the chest is still alive and well, and his name is from my understanding is William Bradley, and he still resides in the state of New Jersey, in the city of Newark. And is even in, even is in one of Mr. Booker's uh, uh, political advertisements. Uh, close enough in proximity that he was aware of this person. I'm sure by now that he has been asked the question of his thoughts on this uh, particular coincidence. Uh, and also on whether or not based on his political influence that he's in, not, I mean, he's a victim of racism, white supremacy, but nevertheless, uh, has he ever brought this up, uh, to the, uh, whatever enforcement, uh, facility that would, uh, pertain, this would pertain to, uh, and just wondering if he ever, you know, had any thoughts or what his thoughts and whatever he, uh, attempted to do on that subject matter. Uh, DCS program, uh, another session today. Uh, we uh, saw another part of the docu docudrama uh, of the Central Park Five. Uh, I think it was the part where uh, they, at least about three or four of the uh, young fellows uh, was released from prison and their attempts to adjust back from greater confinement was the uh, part that we saw today. And uh, basically, uh, that's it. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. That was one thing I was going to add since uh, television was brought up. A, a retired firefighter has been telling us about the 
DCS program and they've been watching uh, Ava DuVernay's film on the Central Park Five uh, for a couple of weeks at least now. And I think some other folks, Cal's listeners, mentioned that film and how uh, it was traumatizing uh, watching it. Uh, and I have not viewed it uh, and said I was not going to view it for that very reason. Uh, be mindful. I think uh, they I just I've heard that from so many different people watching movies that have black people in them frequently. And they end up saying that they were traumatized seeing the movie or the TV series. Uh, there are many reasons Dr. Welsing used to say reading is more important than watching television. One of them, you always get a healthy dose of white supremacy programming anytime that television is on. But particularly if the result of you watching it is, oh, this made me feel awful and disturbed my rest. And like anything like that, where you have been adversely impacted uh, by your viewing experience, watch less. Uh, that would be the suggestion. Be very, very mindful of that, uh, especially folks that have those enormous uh, televisions. Uh, and I mean, even that has to be put in context. I think enormous used to be like 50 inches and you know that's kind of you know mundane uh now people that have those enormous screens i mean that is an intense like mega dose of white supremacy programming just having everything so large and and how that impacts uh yeah you can think the converse dr welsing talked about looking at those small screens and how that restricts your view to have this massive uh, image of all of this white supremacy imaging of black rapists and black people doing all these crazy things uh, and the way that we talk to each other, having that be that huge so that it dominates the whole room and is towering over you, that probably has an impact too. Uh, and uh, quickly, I don't think uh, black people or Emmett Till's family, uh, I don't think they are the ones who put the monument there. It sounds like that was like city officials uh, in Mississippi, probably some white people behind it because they said they gave an apology from the city. So that would seem like something white people would do in terms of putting the monument there. So yeah, I don't know if that was a, a black effort or a Till family effort to get that statue or, or monument there. Uh, other folks that we have missed totally, I'll give out the number again, 605-313-513. Five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, others we missed totally. Can I be heard? Greetings, Imhan DC. Yes, sir. Greetings and greetings to everyone else. I wanted to speak about a few things. Um, first thing, it's Hapana. Hey, um, is I'm I'm walking my dog. Excuse me. I'm walking my dog, um, but I walk it without a leash. But anyway, so I'm not going to uh, give it any more instructions while we're on the phone. Um, I was going to make mention about the Glock 19 being the gun that should be purchased, the handgun that should be purchased. 
Um, it's Glock 19 MOS. Um, spend a few more dollars and you can get it, um, what they call MOS, where it's ready to put on optics, um, a red dot optic, which is supposed to be the superior aiming um, device. And I would not get another type of gun. Um, I'm enjoying my uh, Glock 19. Um, I, if you remember from the retreat, I had a uh, Smith & Wesson that um, I was actually like a, a backup gun that wasn't, <laughs> it was a bit poorly uh, maintained as far as needing to be oiled. But um, if, if there was another gun that I would suggest, it would be the Taurus 111. I think it's like $200 roundabout. And it shoots decent for me. I've um, watched a number of reviews. And, you know, a lot of the uh, pros uh, review that relatively high. Um, what the reviews I saw, I've seen a few failures. Um, uh, failure to shoot. Uh, I didn't have those failures when I, I had mine. Um, but you should also purchase a BB gun, like a spring-loaded BB gun, because it's cheaper. Um, and the point is practicing your aim for cheap. Um, so get that. Uh, and then, of course, once you get more money, then get a rifle, maybe a shotgun. Um, I think it's 870. What is it? Um, it's slipping my mind at the moment. But um, the other thing I wanted to mention was concerning as Black Americans or Indigenous people here in America, uh, again, I promote deportation of white people, especially of Arabs next, of Chinese next, and of anyone else who does not have our interests in, uh, in their mind or in their behaviors. Uh, thank you. Much obliged, Imhan DC. They have leash laws for a reason. Just, uh, just what well, they do have leash laws for a reason. Anyway. Uh, much obliged uh, for sharing Imhan DC. Um, and definitely thank you for the tips, saving money, uh, and recommended, or I guess suggestions, suggestions uh, for self-defense, and then also suggestions for saving money as you become proficient with your aim. Codification. Uh, other folks that we have missed totally, if you have commentary to share, Star six one. Hello. Uh, yes, ma'am. <clears throat> I know I was talking, but it doesn't seem like anyone else is speaking. Is that correct? Uh, proceed. Let's let's hear it. Um, I think I will. I have a, I guess, hypothesis about the information about the prenatal 
issues and deaths and adverse circumstances surrounding black people. Um, there's an article, another article, USA Today, and it says a mother's stress level during pregnancy may affect the baby's sex. Study suggests, and the study suggests that high stress leads to a female baby as opposed to a male baby. Um, the study done by Columbia University, New York Presbyterian Hospital, they said the findings weren't all that surprising because during Kennedy's assassination in 9-11, there were more female births than male births. So normally, there are more boys. They're saying in general, they're using more boys born than girls, but this stress would affect, I don't know, they didn't say what trimester, of course, but that would affect the birth. So maybe they're letting us know, too. Again, we get stressed out. Oh, the doctor's horrible. It's going to be bad, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'm having a baby. Oh, what am I going to do? Girl baby. I'm a girl baby, so, you know, I'm not. Not against girl babies. I'm, I, I was one. Um, but, you know, more females than males, than anti-sex behavior outside. Um, staying, not procreating at all or procreating with someone who is not black. And that could, you know, that could be the results of that. So, you know, talk about black male privilege. I guess you're so privileged they don't want you to exist at all. They don't want, you know, the Innocence Project is freeing too many. The the videos are showing too many negative incidents. We're getting caught. So just don't give birth to them at all. Ta-da. Stress. So congratulations if you're a male and you're alive. You're a real miracle, especially if you're black. Because you were definitely not supposed to be alive. Thank you. Congressman Elijah Cummings, 68 years old. Black male privilege there too, I reckon. Uh, I just uh, tweeted that report from uh, USA Today if folks want to uh, check it out. Uh, But that is something to consider. They do have us under lots of different types of anxiety and stress. So definitely something to consider. Uh, Other folks that we have uh, missed totally, if you have commentary, questions, suggestions, line should be open. While we give folks a chance, uh, if they dialed in, uh, the other folks don't wait till last minute. Uh, while the other folks, uh, if you have comments, questions, feel free. Again, we should be here uh, Tuesday, Dr. Lathan. Uh, looking forward to asking. They had those new, that's why I said you have to be, you have to use logic uh, and try to, as best you can, to seek the truth. Uh, They just had that new report saying that, hey, having a little bit of red meat in your diet isn't such a bad thing after all, uh, contradicting some of the things that they said uh, previously. Looking forward to hearing Dr. Lathan's thoughts uh, on that this Tuesday uh, and hearing if she has other suggestions, ways to help out parents in particular. Uh, Wednesday, Professor Colin, Colin Gordon, white man, should be here. 
Uh, we'll be talking about his book, Citizen Brown, on white supremacy in the St. Louis area specifically, uh, and how years of deliberate white terrorism led to Michael Brown Jr. and all the rest with black people being mistreated. Uh, as I said, his book is not constructive, uh, the portion that I've read thus far, but he will be here on Wednesday and we can talk about why it's not constructive and is rife with metaphors. Uh, that'll be Wednesday. If folks have a suggestion for the book club, you can email or you can share. Uh, if you have thoughts, I'll try to have the new book selected uh, by Tuesday. Uh, but if you have thoughts for what we should read next, good time to speak up while we have not decided. Uh, other folks have comments, suggestions they wanted to offer. Uh, be in Toronto. Yes, I would like to make a suggestion. Um, if uh, the book club, if you can consider the book called Southern Horror, I think that would be a, a very insightful book to um, to look into. I think we would go back to the Black Rapist and that one uh, as well, but. That is something we've been talking about quite a bit. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Or Southern Horrors, the Ida B. Wells book. That's the one you're talking about? Um, actually, I'm, I'm not at home to look at my library right now to confirm, uh, but I can certainly um, follow up with an email uh, once I get back home to confirm with you as to um, the name of the author of the book. Okie doke. That is grand whenever you have a free moment. Stress, lots of stress, lots of things to do uh, under the system. Just because there are uh, two different books with that title, uh, Southern Horrors. One of them, uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett, uh, that is obviously much older. Uh, and then there's a more recent book uh, with the same title by Kristen N. Feimster, 2011. Uh, she has been suggested uh, before. So... Yeah, that's why I was, which one, and it doesn't matter, either one, the black rapist would still be there, either one, so that's why I said, how can this be that ubiquitous, that you can't pick up a book, fiction, nonfiction, and the leering black rapist is there, like, context of white supremacy, there is a reason the host is Gusty Renegade. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Uh, to my suggestion of uh, Paul Robeson, uh, the author, the author's name is Gerald Horn. Gerald Horn. Uh, I, I, I had the, the title of the book on the tip of my tongue. And, uh, oh, that's a metaphor. <laughs> I, ha I had it in my mind and, and it, and it uh, I uh, forgot it again. Uh, the title of the book, but uh, anyway, uh, just to emphasize that uh, uh, Mr. Robeson literally sacrificed uh, uh, his uh, quote unquote popularity uh, as an entertainer uh, to uh, attempt to solve the problem of racism, white, white supremacy, and uh, I think uh, the reading of this book based on 
a reliable source that informed me of it. I haven't read it myself. It would be worth our time and energy to do so. Uh, yes. The artist is revolutionary, Mr. Gerald Horn. That's uh, it. That's it. He's written quite That's a few books on white supremacy racism. Uh, he, he has some other, yes, he does have some other books that sound pretty interesting, the titles anyway. One of them, he speaks directly, it, it speaks directly to white supremacy. And I just noticed that today when I looked over his uh, writing background. But this book was recommended to me from a personal reliable resource. Uh, so I think it'll be, if not this particular time, sometime in the near future, it should be uh, considered. Thank you. Much and no, I don't, I, don't think you, I don't think you get a report of him raping somebody. <laughs> he did play uh, Jack Johnson in a film, so, woo, man. <laughs> um, anyway, uh if uh, we're going to do this one, someone would have to do the reading. So if we, and this is not a very big book, uh, it's less than 200 pages. So if someone would like to narrate, that is always appreciated. Uh, narrating is. That's another reason. That's another reason why I, I have it as a recommendation because it didn't look like it had a lot of, uh, volume to it. Mm-hmm. Not too long. I think we'd be, uh, I wouldn't mind helping out. Uh, I, I have to get a book because I don't have. I wouldn't have. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Let me that give you chapter help. three. Get a book. Let me give you chapter three. <laughs> chapter three: Rising Revolutionary. When Robeson played the lead role in Othello, that would be another black male gone crazy for a white woman. Shakespeare in London in 1930. Box office records were set, and the tragedy ran for six weeks. Reportedly, it garnered a hefty. 22,000 pounds in the first few weeks of production. It was not unusual for early performances to be greeted by 20 or more curtain calls. His already skyrocketing reputation ascended further, for this production struck a chord in the populace. This was not unlike what happened in the 19th century when Robeson's predecessor as premier Tridian Ira Aldrich was also catapulted into further prominence when performing this same role in Europe. This suggested that the plot involving a more in a contradictory relationship with the state tapped into unresolved dilemmas about racism and the color bar which Robeson had confronted only recently in London in a blaze of publicity. The interracial scenes in this play also resonated for just as Robeson was entering the stage in London, a worldwide cause celeb was erupting in Scottsboro, Alabama when non-black youths were falsely accused of sexual molestation of two white women. They were headed for execution like so many African-Americans previously and blah, 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 and talks about his effort in that. But again, like I said, black rapists got to be lurking somewhere in there, probably repeatedly. That's about two or three times on the same page with Othello and all that. Anyway, uh, we already, so retired firefighter said he'd be willing to help out, and this is not a big book. So if maybe one or two people, uh, and he doesn't have the book yet, so maybe if we had one person, and you could do the narration for this week, maybe by next week, 
he might have the book so that he could help out and do some of the narrating then, perhaps. Or maybe if you did the first two weeks and then by two weeks he would have it and could pitch in with the reading. But if we have other people that would be willing to read, if this sounds, you all can check it out online uh, if you want to see if it's worth worth the read. Paul Robeson, The Artist is Revolutionary by Gerald Horn. Uh, you can read a chapter or so and see what you think. They got a Kindle version so you can get the electronic copy if you like. Thank you for the suggestion, retired firefighter. Uh, other folks, uh, if you have comments, questions, suggestions. Can I be heard? Uh, Imhan DC, yes, sir. Yes, sir, yes, sir. It's a good point about the leash laws. So I'll do better. Um, but the, the police, like most, a good portion of the force sees me walk, walking the dog all the time. They haven't said anything yet. They even stopped and just, you know, just looked at me. We just kind of looked at each other while I was at a stop sign. And, uh, but I'll do better. Um, I was going to mention Remington 870 is the shotgun. AR-15 is the rifle. Glock 19 is the handgun. Glock 19 MOS. Um, and with your... With your handgun, you need a good holster. And from all the reviews, you know, looking online and everything, they say um, appendix carry is the most efficient way to carry. Um, that means uh, in front. Um, and they say concealed carry is the best way to carry also. Um, I, there was something else that I was going to mention. Um, oh, I was going to mention, uh, you've made something, uh, you, you spoke about fish. Um, I know, you know, we shouldn't eat meat, but whew, when I was in Ghana, the first time I spent a little more time on the coast than, uh, this time, but the freshest fish I've ever had was right there on the coast. Um, Elmina, um, and the uh, place right, right beside, um, Elmina. The fish was very, very fresh. They, I, they wouldn't let me go out and um, and fish with them. They thought I'd drown, um, you know. And then they have to explain it or something. But when they they brought the fish back, they took it right off the boat. They handed it to the vendor who was on the street. She chopped the head off or didn't chop. The, usually they don't chop the head off. Just put it right there in the in the food and eat it. Shouldn't eat meat, but um, that was the freshest fish. I've ever had, and it was a whole bunch of different types of fish too. Um, but yeah, that was an interesting experience and um, enjoyable experience for me to be on the coast. Uh, thank you. Much obliged, Imhan DC. That is uh, a totally different way of fish consumption. Uh, even though I am a proud vegan, then you know the way that a lot of people get their fish typically uh where you are in the middle of wisconsin or mississippi or wherever else and it's been shipped in from wherever else i won't say mississippi they're close to the gulf but wisconsin arizona those type places where you are not very close uh to where somebody could have went and got this recently where it had to be trucked in from who knows where that sort of thing uh in addition to how many poisons we talked about uh the the water in flint and newark and all the rest 
that is, is a whole different host of problems. But yeah, that's that's totally different uh, than being in a situation where you can go out and do the fishing yourself and do it right there. Very different relationship to food consumption, all of that. Uh, much obliged uh, for sharing. M. Han DC. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, suggestions, thoughts, book recommendations, uh, feel free. Star six one. Thought we had nabbed everybody. Uh, I'll give folks a tad if uh, some of the folks we haven't heard from uh, give them a bit to chime in uh, be prepping for I guess not quite a full week since Monday uh, won't be broadcasting but lots of broadcasting coming up for the week hopefully folks in the Missouri area will be able to participate on uh, Wednesday to ask a white man questions in fact if you'd like to do uh, homework Professor Gordon, our guest for Wednesday, he did a segment on St. Louis Public Radio where he was kind of talking about his book and they had some black people there and talking about some of the different issues in the area and exact topics he talks about in the book. Uh, if you want to check out the interview uh, and kind of prep, get some questions together perhaps based on some of his responses there and I guess to see uh, how the black people, how they spoke to him, how did he speak to the black people, uh, was there anything, you know, worthwhile uh, in that dialogue? I'll be, you know, doing my homework uh, research, uh, listening to that in preparation for Wednesday. But you can listen. I'll post the link if folks are interested in uh, doing any uh, study between now and Wednesday. If you need an excuse to uh, turn off the television, there you go. Uh, let's see. I can give uh, one more. I discussed on workplace uh, racism, talking about racism during my internship over the week with the white woman studio owner and how I, you know, that's exact opposite of what I talk about. But in this case, it came up. They were talking about racism. So that and that can't happen in the job uh, at times uh, where it gets brought up directly. I still recommend being quiet. Ask questions, perhaps, but it is not the time for making speeches, which I still minimized greatly uh, in that environment. Uh, but she mentioned uh, it's some sort of report that was done about how white women are causing problems in yoga, practicing racism, basically. And she said that it caused, uh, I guess it upset a lot of white people and they didn't want to. Uh, even, you know, investigate or hear what was being said uh, because they, you know, were just riled up from the very beginning, uh, which did not surprise me uh, in the least. Uh, she spoke as if she did listen uh, and, you know, was not in that number of people who just got upset. Uh, I'm going to check it out at my leisure and see if I can uh, find a question. That would be my recommendation if you should find yourself in a workplace setting uh, and, it seems like there's some prodding going on to discuss racism. I don't think the job is the time for you to be making big speeches to present your worldview uh, on what racism, white supremacy is, 
how it works, uh, what you thought about Elijah Cummings, anything really. Uh, it's just not the environment, I don't think. I, everything would be greatly minimized, asking questions and redirecting to talking about the job. Not veering, not veering off into my views uh, on racism. That would be my suggestion. Yes, sir, Thomas in New York. Yeah, I had a situation at work. And um, I actually called the firefighter to tell him, oh, but my my white colleague, um, whom I work in the office room with, you know, all day, and occasionally um, current events come up. So she tends to see that probably I don't stand in the same position as her political views. So I guess they, with my boss team, another white female, they called themselves having an intervention because, you know, they, they were, Thomas, he seems to like Donald Trump. And, oh, God, so this white woman goes, to, so I, at the end of the day, I say, well, I don't even vote. I don't, I don't participate in United States politics. That, you know, it's just, I don't really care. But she says, um, but your people, it's the second time I use this technique. This this um, same thing, uh, but either way, your people died for you to have the right to rule. I said, no, my people died because your people was killing them. Oh, boy, the conversation turned so fast. Man, we wasn't talking about that anymore, just as I suspected. Um, but either way, you know, it wasn't really nothing she could say about it because it was true. Um, the um, situation this week with um, LeBron James um, victim of white supremacy. Uh, in the NBA overall, uh, the white general manager tweeted, uh, and he was, in my opinion, um, very accurate in what he said um, about the protests and everything in um, China. And China, of course, they didn't like that. So they decided they were going to penalize the NBA for the comments made by this white man. Um, the NBA took a stance where they're not making this white man apologize for what he said. Um, but the players go out and apologize for this white man. And um, LeBron James had a press conference where he called himself, I guess, Goldie, the white man, which I would definitely told him, do not do that. Um, and calling the white man ignorant for the comments he made, um, which put LeBron James into a lot of, um, I wouldn't say trouble, but um, in the media, it's, uh, because what the guy said was true about the oppressive, you know, government they were under. I would have loved for LeBron James to have redirected that conversation and um, said, well, you know, and, um, you know, I think this would have been a codified response. Um, you know, I'm I'm not here to talk about China. I would prefer to talk about the fact that we have another black person killed in their house by police. That is where I would like to focus my attention to. You know, I, I don't whatever's going on there is you know their problem. You know, if that's the stance you want to take. However, um, but I think that it would be um, just to stand with other people that's being oppressed. Um, I think that would be the um, just thing to do. Um, and, the, you know, also to stand on the truth, you know, um, not support a lie. 
um, what, what was said was true. And I'm mute my line. Thank you, Gus. Much obliged, uh, Thomas in New York. Uh, I think some of what they said, LeBron James commentary was motivated. I think the, the Lakers had a game in China that was impacted by some of that. Uh, yeah, I think that was that was a part of his response too, but be that as it may. I was going to ask for the quick make sure I didn't forget. What exactly did you see when you watched the Amber Geiger trial specifically about the testimony of Joshua Brown, where you said something seemed uh, incorrect, I'll say, something seemed suspicious uh, in his testimony? Well, I could tell he was he was from the street. And, uh, his attire he wore came in there with this um, very expensive vintage Dragon Ball V shirt, jewelry, um, he said he was involved with other police altercations and things. But what stood out to me more than anything is that, you know, I worked at Deloitte and PricewaterhouseCoopers is their, you know, competitor. They're pretty much the same. Um, they're very, very, these are two of the most powerful financial institutions in the world. And they start off their auditors at about two hundred to two hundred eighty-five thousand dollars a year. Now I'm looking at the apartment building. I mean, he could afford to live there. A police officer working all this overtime can afford to live there. This brother said he manages Airbnbs. So I said, wait a minute. Now you know, like um, my spidey senses, Gus. You know, just you know, um, my my niglet senses started going off. It's like, wait a minute now, you you know, what is he involved in that he can afford to live there? You know, and the, his, the way he was dressed, the way he came to court, it just had a, a vibe to me that was off. It was something that wasn't right there. So when I saw that the shooting took place and the guy was shot in the chest and when he went to the um, hospital and came through, the police questioned him. He said he was shot by uh, Mr. Brown and a drug deal, and two of his friends got away, it didn't seem off to me. It didn't seem like this was a conspiracy or something. It seemed like, man, this I could see that he was involved in something like that, you know, just based off of my first inclination of watching his testimony. Much obliged. Thank you uh, for explaining, Thomas, in New York. That's... Uh... Spotty senses has got to be a metaphor, uh, as is niglet senses, but be that as it may. Um, yeah, that, in fact, that remind that was the point I was making when I brought up the report from WNYC about maternal mortality. She said that black people have uh, a sense about them, a safety sense uh, about them. That, in my view, cannot be true just based on counter-racist logic. If we did, we wouldn't have a system of racism. There wouldn't be video uh, of a black person saying, oh, man, Jeffrey Dahmer was my homie. He used to cook dinner for me. We would sit and laugh and have a grand old time. That would not be the case. And it is. That would not be the case uh, if black people had a built-in sensor of, uh oh there's something suspicious uh, about this here person. At minimum, it is not working correctly for many, many, many black people. 
perhaps you can start to get some of that back, uh, the better your understanding of white supremacy racism, what it means to be white, perhaps then you can start to get some of your uh, niglet senses back, as they say. Uh, other folks, uh, if there's anybody we missed totally, you should definitely, you know, speak up now. Do not wait till the last minute. Uh, anybody that we uh, has other comments, questions you want to make sure you share, proceed. Everybody is set. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, my uh, offspring is uh, it still is in uh, college, and uh, from time to time he brings uh, to the uh, place of residence where we are allowed to stay at uh, a. Uh, a co uh, uh, co college uh, partner uh, over, and uh, I normally, you know, have a brief uh, conversation with the uh, the person, and and uh, I find it interesting in some cases. Uh, this was a non-white black male victim of racist white supremacy. And uh, I uh, asked him on uh, what uh, he, is, he was majoring in. He, he said something about psychiatry. And I asked him, well, what, what are you going to do with that, that uh, degree? And he said uh, he was going to uh, join the FBI. And uh, I don't try to uh, discourage anyone from... Uh, uh, pursuing uh, a place for employment, uh, and in this case, this is uh, a, uh, a quote-unquote law enforcement. Uh, basically, uh, when I get that answer, uh, I uh, just make the statement, well, uh, try to uh, always practice justice, and uh, I uh, also uh, state that you're going to be challenged otherwise to not practice justice. Uh, so it's not going to be easy to practice justice. And I give, give them the compensatory uh, definition to the word justice. And uh, he uh, went on to uh, state that uh, uh, he had a questionable uh, look about himself, and and uh, he stated something about uh, uh, if their uh, racism is not as bad as it used to be, and and uh, something of that fashion in the conversation. And uh, basically, I uh, gave him some uh, some evidence that would alter his, uh, his thoughts. Uh, and I asked him, where was he, where was, where did, where was he from? And he said, Jacksonville, Florida. And there was quite a, a, a long list of, uh, 
up-to-date uh, instances of racism white supremacy right there in the uh, city. And I asked them also to research on the name Jacksonville uh, on top of it. So uh, just something that I didn't include when I first spoke that I thought was uh, relevant to this week. Thank you for listening. Much obliged, retired firefighter. I thought you were going to tell us when he, when he told you the career ambition. I'm going to work for the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, Mr. Hoover's building. I say, wow, you are going to be a first-class coon. But he didn't say that. <laughs> that is, uh, no, that no. Is, I mean, that thought may be in my mind, but I'm not going to allow it to come out of my mouth. <laughs> Uh, because we all, we all, unfortunately, uh, as victims of racism, white supremacy, one of the uh, challenging uh, instances of the system of racism, white supremacy, is that uh, it uh, has its victims directly involved into uh, our own mistreatment, in, in a sense, because we have to uh, be employed. Uh, uh, by primarily white people. And uh, I also wore a uniform for, for uh, 28 and a half years. Uh, just like any soldier, if they get wounded or harmed, they're going to call for a medic. And that's basically what I was on a local county level. You know, you have it from a, 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 uh, uh, local level, city, state, and international-wise, you have it on all those levels. So I wouldn't be uh, correct into uh, uh, stating uh, something along the lines where you shouldn't be doing that. You know, basically the only thing I have to say to it, and I think I'm somewhat accurate, uh, is that, uh, you know, always attempt to practice justice, and you are going to be challenged. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Try to remember, uh, remind uh, folks, uh, Mr. Fuller was a federal employee for many years, retired, in fact, as a federal employee. So, yeah, you uh, can hold down that type of job and still contribute mightily to counter-racism. Uh, any other folks, comments they want to make sure they get in before we conclude? Uh, I heard Thomas in New York. Uh, is anybody we missed totally? May I be heard? Uh, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I, I wanted to make a comment on the, it looks like it was a, uh, like a city council meeting where the uh, the black female victim, I think her name was uh, Tatiana Jefferson. Um, there were uh, a lot of victims coming out. Uh, they were speaking against the, uh, I guess the officials in that city. And I noticed that a white man pointed out because uh, he had his phone up. And he said, hey, you know, I want you all to stop looking down at your phones and pay attention to what's being said. Um, 
And uh, there was one black male that got up and said he was trying to run for mayor. And I think it's called Fort Worth. Uh, and a comment was made that he would be the social justice candidate, uh, which was interesting because I didn't get a definition of what that meant. And uh, what I noticed also was it was a few white people that got up to the podium. And of course, they got more applause than the black victims that spoke about the incident and the racism in that area. Uh, especially when a white woman got up there and she was naming uh, the, the percentages and how many black people have been shot and killed. Uh, I think she said within the last year, it was like six deaths. Four of them were black and was pointing out how the police, I think the police union or something like that, um, donated money to the city or whatever. And I noticed it was a codified uh, statement before they began speaking. A lot of the white people who spoke, they, they would say, I'm from a district such and such. My name is this, and I'm unsafe, and I show solidarity to my black and brown brothers and sisters. And they said the same thing, almost the same exact way. So it's like, uh, I think racism was practiced in a sophisticated manner where they may have been seated and positioned like in different areas in that council meeting where they would get up and say this to kind of control uh, how, I guess, the event went. But it was racism also being practiced by the people, uh, the officials that were sitting overhearing people speaking. They were not looking up at them. They were looking down and showing uh, massive um, disinterest. Uh, and it was about two hours long. I didn't look at the whole thing, but I saw enough. It did look to be constructive to me. And uh, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Black and brown. Again. Woo. Uh, thank you for your patience, Thomas in New York. Did you have another comment you were going to get in? Yeah, it's a book. Um, that I, I just found out about, um, it falls in line a lot about what I, what I talk about, but, um, it's a black author, Wuha Benjamin. Um, and the name of the book is race after technology abolitionist tools for the new Jim code and Jim code, like the, the algorithm now that's replaced in the white supremacist, um, you know, that's, already has the racial bias already encoded in it. Um, so I, I just thought this was an interesting book. I'm about to get I just thought I'd mention it. The New Jim Code, Race After Technology. Is the author a white person or a non-white person? Appears to be a black a black sister, um, very melanated. Oh, okay. Right on, right on. Race after technology. Love it. Okay. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, I'll share this. One. Oh, yeah, yeah. Black female. I hadn't seen a picture. She has a picture before. Okay. 
awesome. She's lovely. That's great. Uh, we will add this to the list, maybe even see if she'd be down to come and chat it up with us. Um, in the meantime, if folks have, oh, that's disheartening. See there? I can, uh, hmm. I, let me double Hello. check before I, yes, ma'am. Hi, I just want to say quickly, um, AOC, Ms. Representative Cortez, who is quote-unquote brown, supports Bernie Sanders, who is against reservations for black people. Black and brown coalition, that's what they tell us. But what? Thank you. Woo. Four more years. Four more years when all of that is done. Uh, yeah, I will wrap there. We'll see if we can somehow, some way incorporate, uh, oop, I lost the book, Race After Technology moving forward as well. Thanks everyone for participating. Uh, hopefully you will have a constructive Saturday evening, what's left of it, or Monday morning, excuse me, Sunday morning, I reckon. Uh, again, we'll be here every day, Tuesday through Saturday this coming week. Dr. Lathan on Tuesday, Professor Colin uh, Gordon on Wednesday, book of some sort starting on Thursday, a new one, Workplace Racism Friday, and the compensatory call-in on Saturday. Uh, hopefully it'll be a constructive week. Tune in, have your questions ready for the white man on Wednesday. Until then, eat well, use logic, uh, sobriety, would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Let's keep our brain computers working in optimal conditions so that we can come up with permanent solutions to the problem. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, driver or passenger. Uh, let's do everything that we can to minimize contact with the Amber Geigers of the world, uh, in addition to being sober, buckled up, if you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, again, just doing the little things uh, to try to stay as safe as we can. Much obliged for the folks called my Cory Booker error. He does not have a white parent. Man, strive for accuracy. Creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. 
In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.